Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome on to our post-All-Star break. Not quite 15-60. Denver, Golden State, Utah. You guys are going to have to wait until tomorrow because we want to talk about some games involving those teams. So let's begin. We'll go in order of record here in the Western Conference. And that leads us to the team that has led the West most of the way in the 23-24 season, the Minnesota Timberwolves. That is correct. And the Minnesota Timberwolves, as we record this, are 40-17, and 5-2 since the last 15-16. and 60. They are third in the NBA, including the glass net rating, plus 8.3 per 100 possessions, 16th in offense, numero uno in defense, where they have been a lot of the year that is propelling so much of the success. And then ESPN's BPI projects them to finish with a 57 win total, which would be first in the West. So BPI, which was skeptical earlier in the year, has come around on the Wolves, even though it is a very tight race. We'll, of course, talk about that. And Minnesota is going to make the playoffs. Yeah, and it's uh, seen some offensive improvement of late. They did have a tough loss at home coming right out of the break to the Bucks uh, without Chris Middleton, uh, where they only scored 13 points in the third quarter. And uh, I thought th- that was a little bit interesting. Anthony Edwards has struggled in his two games after the break, but you would imagine he would get it going. He really struggled, and then he hit a couple of really difficult threes that made that game against the Bucks closer than it would have seemed right at the end. But Anthony Edwards, as one of the best shooting guard prospects that we've seen uh, has been compared to Michael Jordan and he of course sloughed off those comments earlier but then Kevin Garnett of course Wolves legend quite topical around the all-star break compared Garnett to an early Michael Jordan 1984 Michael Jordan about the age that Anthony Edwards is right now in his age 22 season let me ask you this Danny just as you think about it as we think of some of the best shooting guard prospects in our lifetime you know now still at 22 he's still young enough to be on our top 10 prospects list where would you rank Anthony Edwards as of this time relative to some of those other obviously great hall of fame players it's a little bit hard for me because a lot of them were before my time like there is a weird lull in shooting guard prospects in the kind of my wheelhouse for this um I don't think of them as having super similar games. And T-Mac is probably more of a three, right? I would Um, think so. Yeah, he's really, I I mean, when I think of a shooting guard prospect, I think of either, you know, T-Mac, especially when he was young, he was like protecting the rim, you know, doing a lot of stuff mm -hmm. athletically. Like Vince Carter, I wouldn't necessarily think of as a shooting guard as much either. He was kind of more of a three to me. And, and, And a lot of those guys are idiosyncratic. Like James Harden was, you know, one of my favorite young players. But I think Harden and Edwards do it so differently because like there aren't that many physically and that's part of the the mj comparison that makes sense is there aren't that many physically dominant 
and productive twos. Like usually they're a little bit bigger or they're a little bit smaller or something else like that. And, and Edwards can play the three, but he's, you know, listed at six, four two twenty five, I believe at this point. So yeah. he is and, and you know, like a seven foot wingspan too. Right. So, but he is more of a, like you think of his roles, he's, he can defend point of attack too, but like more of a two than a three. So, I don't have a great one. I'm sure there are probably people like, I mean, Kobe was before, as I said, young Kobe was more when I was like just watching games sometimes for fun as a kid. So I don't have a great comp. Yeah. I mean, when I think in terms of like the, the playing style, you know, maybe not like, actually, I would say his playing style reminds me a little bit of Vince Carter. Now Vince, even in a tougher era to get to the basket was able to get there more and finish more. But Vince did have just that easy ability to get separation on the perimeter fire up jumpers uh, and now vince was someone who probably had his best years you know really in his early 20s uh, you know and then i i thought it was a little disappointing the way that he leveled off later in in his career you know, i mean there was a time when people thought that he was just way better than tracy mcgrady tracy mcgrady ends up leaving toronto and tracy mcgrady i think ended up being a, a better player than vince carter uh until you know, injuries really kind of sap things for for him uh but i mean the the guys that come to mind for me when you look at the best shooting guards you know i didn't go back to mj because some of the stats on him just aren't as comparable so kobe bryant obviously comes to mind Dwayne wade i mean those are the two best shooting guards to me uh, after mj of my lifetime you know reggie miller just a different type of game not really comparable james harden probably the most comparable just in terms of the physical composition although edwards with his two-foot explosion is is a different level as an athlete than harden but they both kind of have that big body the big wingspan but those are the three guys and so i think it's useful to go back this is the age 22 season for anthony edwards i want to compare him to kobe bryant Dwayne wade and take a look at kind of where he is statistically compared to those guys and i'm going to talk a little bit about just the comparison as well between their games and just what it looks like uh, on paper so i want to note a few things here obviously the league average is much lower right if we're looking at a 22 year old kobe bryant that's the 01 season a 22 year old Dwayne wade that's actually his rookie season in 0304 and then it, his breakout year the the next year that's the first year we actually have play type data for synergy which i wanted to talk about a little bit so the league average true shooting percentage in both these years is basically 52 percent a little under 52 percent now of course it's 58 percent and that's right where anthony edwards is this season a little bit above 58 percent now 59 percent true shooting anthony edwards actually has the highest usage percentage even mm-hmm. higher than kobe now who was playing with Shaq during one of those Shaq missed a bunch of time that year that's part of what pushed up kobe's usage well and that was the year that, that kobe point. had a higher he had a higher assist rate that year if memory serves because yeah. of that yeah and then uh, but it is interesting that anthony edwards as much as there has been discussion of his passing he actually other than Dwayne wade has the highest assist percentage that's basically an estimate of the percentage of teammate field goals a player assists while they're on the floor now sometimes you can increase that just by shooting a lot yourself by making sure that uh, <laughs> the, teammates the, don't the take Monte that many field Ellis goals. corollary <laughs> Yeah, but if you want to go look at assists per 100 possessions, Anthony Edwards actually has the highest assist 7.3 per 100 possessions you, you really have to the pace was so much slower then uh, obviously offense was down so you just have generally fewer assists but that 
as much as Anthony Edwards gets looked at as like, oh, he's not that natural of a passer. And obviously this Wolves team has less spacing than a lot of these other teams today, although they probably have more spacing than you know, teams that like Kobe and Dwayne Wade were playing on. So that, that was interesting to me to see that because I, you know, if you look at Kobe and James Harden, oh, James Harden is still in a six man role in 2012 at this point. Dwayne Wade, this is again, his rookie season. And when he only had a 25 usage, that's the year before Shaq gets to Miami and they make it to the second round, but, but lose to the Pacers that and, year. And Nate, one of the wild things when you compare these players statistically is that Bryant, Carter and Wade were all, they, they weren't the same year, but they were in a similar time. All of them shot 30.5% or worse from three in the year that we're talking about. Yeah. And all of them took 2.63 per 36 or fewer. Now, they, if we you included James Harden in this, and Harden, closer to the modern era, is much closer to Edwards in terms of attempt rate and, and percentage. But like it's such a stark difference that reflects a lot of things in the league. And it's impressive that Edwards is like his his free throw attempt rate is actually pretty comparable to those guys. It, it's um you know when you scale it for possessions as you should because the the pace is so different now it gets a little like he gets he's in the middle of the pack not at the front of the pack but that is pretty striking. Well, and when you I mean that to me is the skill that stands out even among these shooting guards even with someone like James Harden who wouldn't really develop that crazy step back ISO game uh, until a couple years into his Houston tenure that Anthony Edwards basically, you know, shoots 36% from three, but after his rookie year, he was age 19, he's been 36% or over. And these are just really difficult off the dribble shots. And that's something from three that none of these other guys really had. I mean, Vince would be the guy maybe, but still even a little bit later into his career who might've had that a little bit, but, and obviously Kobe would have moments where he could get hot, but Kobe, you know, Anthony Edwards is shooting 38% on threes this year on this incredibly difficult shot diet. He can come off screens off the ball, obviously he can create them in isolation he can shoot them out of the pick and roll so that's the biggest thing that he has that these guys don't now i think those guys just had more moves inside the arc i do think particularly Dwayne wade was a better passer despite the fact when that edwards is averaging a little bit more in terms of assists it's just that was an era in which it was much harder to be that heliocentric guy and i think actually Dwayne wade might have really been one of the first of those who wasn't at the point guard position, who was really dominating the ball. I mean, if you look at the synergy stats for Wade in 0405, so that's his age 23 season, but he's taking basically no spot up attempts whatsoever that year. Like he's just on the ball all the time. And of course you remember the year after that, the 06 finals, you know, you had one of the most dominating finals runs that we've ever seen. Uh, frankly, a better finals run than Kobe ever had in that 06 finals. So that that's a little, a little bit different. He was really kind of the first of those. There was a time when Jordan would have the ball up top in 1989. They moved him to point guard and he, he had to run a triple doubles. But generally, guys at that size, if they weren't just a pure point guard like Magic, who was really an anomaly and still is at his size, that was he was really one of the first guys to be that heliocentric guy with size who wasn't, you know, just a pure John Stockton style of point guard. Um, yeah, what else sticks out to you as you compare these players? I guess we should talk about the just their efficiency, which is I think probably where Edwards lags behind the most at this point relative to league average. Relative to league average, he does. And so if you're comparing, like, I, I, I brought up free throw attempts per 100 possessions. And so Kobe was the leader leader there, 10.5 free throw attempts per 100 possessions. And he's also the best free throw shooter at, at this age of this group. I believe he was overall in his career, too. And so that's, of course, a huge way that he made his advantage. 
Also, like part of the reason why relative to league average, most of these guys were so much more efficient. It's like, I mean, Edwards over 50 percent on twos and taking volume. But like when you think about the eras and everything else like that. So Anthony Edwards took 18 twos per 100 possessions. Kobe Bryant took 25. Like it's incredible just how the nature of shots has changed. And also Edwards, like all these guys have complicated roles in terms of their, you know, their team's offense. But Edwards, if we're, again, if we're shifting on era um, and doing 100 possessions, he has the highest turnover rate per 100 possessions of any of these guys. But Wade, but as you mentioned, Wade was a better passer. He filled a different role than I think Edwards does, at least mostly. Yeah, so I, I think as you look at this, you know, Harden is a little bit different because he wasn't starting. Harden also had 66% true shooting back yeah. uh, in in an era uh, in which the league average was around 53% uh, in that 11-12 season. I mean, that was just that absolutely insane numbers. 21 usage. Again, w- he goes to Houston the next year and he moves immediately into that more heliocentric role. That's the year before Dwight Howard arrives there, but he does lead uh, that team to the playoffs, ironically enough, uh, against the Thunder. And Edwards, you know, right at league average in true shooting. Kobe, he's got 55% true shooting in his age 22 season. League average, again, is a little under 52%. Wade, what was he in his his age 22 season? In in terms of what? True shooting. 53%. Yeah, so that's, uh, again, this that's his rookie year. I mean, I do think there is something to the idea that it's your rookie year, even if you, know, you are the same age, you still have to, like Anthony Edwards has been you know, basically the go-to guy for two and a half seasons, really almost three and a half seasons now for the wolves it really was when chris finch came in his his rookie year that he started to get the ball more and started to break out so i am fascinated to see where it goes from here but i there are i don't think I, that i would have edwards quite on the same level of harden I, I mean comparing him to harden at this age is a little bit different i mean let's, what about harden's next season that 23 season that that might be more comparable to kind of what edwards is doing now that first season in houston so if we're if we're comparing that year kind of i'll do some of the basic stats so harden's age 23 year the first year in houston 60 percent true shooting on 29 usage so edwards is at 32 but then if you add in you know usage and, and assists so at that point harden was averaging five and a half assists per 36 which is almost exactly what edwards is averaging now so the role the role was there but but Harden was a more efficient overall player in, in part because that was when his free throw attempt skyrocketed in part because he was starting and the ball was in his hands. Yeah. So I, I think ultimately Edwards to me falls in right below those guys as maybe the fourth best shooting guard prospect at this age over the, and maybe I think if you look at his stature right now compared to where Harden was after that third year in OKC as well, where he just wasn't starting. You know, I think if you, you asked me in 2012, you know, who's a better prospect, James Harden, or I could go forward in time for Anthony Edwards. I'd probably have to say Anthony Edwards. I think Harden got that max contract in Houston. People maybe raised an eyebrow at, at it a little bit, but he actually had a non-guarantee on his fifth year. I think there was still a feeling that he'd been great in Oklahoma City, but you just didn't know what was going to happen. Oh, can, can I throw one? Own. Can can I throw yeah. one other player out there? Yeah. So more comparable in terms of era, less comparable in terms of style of play. Devin Booker's age 22 season. Remember, this is when the Suns were still kind of in the process of figuring it out. You and I were worried about it, but 58% true shooting on a 33 usage. So the usage rate is very similar to Edward 
forwards. Of course, you know, he's playing in a comparable era. They didn't do it in the same way. And I believe that was one of the years, this is Booker's fourth year, where he had the ball in his hands all the time. We're like, eh, he's not, he's good at that, but he's not great at that. But it is, again, I don't think of them as physically like the same type of player, but it is, he's a, he's another guy who, and who of course has blossomed into being a wonderful shooting guard in his own right. But I, I think is, you know, he's not the physically dominant player. So like, it's a different archetype, but you know, had a similar role within his offense. If we're just talking about those counting stats. Hmm. You're welcome, Suns fans. <laughs> no, I, I think that's fair. I mean, yeah, so that would have been what year was Devin Booker? 1819. Yeah, I mean, that was that was really the first year where he started really driving his team's offense to be more effective. But yeah, I guess I didn't focus on him as much because we haven't seen how his career has played out. And also, he's not that like super athletic. Right. I, I just wanted to mention it just because I had I in my brain, I'm like, I think that was the Booker year where he had the larger role within the offense. And so there are some yeah. there are some some looser parallels there all right let's turn now to a matchup that took place right after the break between the clippers and the thunder i thought this was a fascinating game thunder i, I ended up winning and what did you say oh i I was, I was just gonna start going into the thunder stats but we can wait on that yeah oh well, i i think it was uh yeah the thunder are now in second place but there's some big stakes to this one with the thunder it seems like they're really going hard for the number one seed the tiebreaker is on the line here so this basically counted as two games both teams uh, i thought really went for it particularly the thunder yeah let's get into the thunder's stats here every day our world gets a little more connected but a little further apart but then there are moments that remind us to be more human thank you for calling amica insurance hey uh i was just in an accident don't worry we'll get you taken care of at amica we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Oklahoma City currently 39-27 and 27 on the year, 4-2 and two since the last 1560. They are second in net rating ahead of the Timberwolves, um, plus 8.7. Third in offense, fourth on defense. So one of the few teams, not only that is top 10 on both offense and defense, but top five. Um, I, I don't have the stats in front of me on, on who else is top five. I believe the Celtics are. Um, they're projected to tie with Minnesota 57 and 25 by BPI for the, for the record and or for the top seed in, in the West. And so, of course, that could be significant moving forward. And I, I hadn't seen your Anthony Edwards prep before I did it, but I cracked up because I want to start this conversation with the 2012 Oklahoma City Thunder, of which James Harden was, of course, a part. There were times in this game that this reminded me of the 2012 Western Conference Finals, where you had an exceedingly talented Spurs team. For those who don't remember, the Spurs went up 2-0, and it was looking like, oh, you know, it's San Antonio. They're this, they're, they're OKC. They did a good job. They made it here. They made the playoffs the year before, but they did that. And then 
all of a sudden OKC just stomps them and like ends up getting that series, wins the next four games, a couple of those in dominant fashion. And there were moments in the third quarter of this game, which OKC, they they took that part of the game 35-23. It had been close at halftime. And I'm just like, oh, you're just more athletic and you're playing harder. Now, this, this, there are ways the Clippers can be better than they were. But that idea of the young, talented team beating the older, talented team that just doesn't quite have that gear anymore, it did feel that way a little bit to me. Yeah, that's a, a very interesting way to put it. I, I felt that those OKC teams were a little more athletic and physically dominant than I would consider this Thunder team to be. What Same. actually it kind of reminded me of, it, and it's funny that we are just searching back through the past, though what that third quarter reminded me of a lot, and the they scored differently in transition than this team would but it actually reminded me defensively of some of those warriors teams going small when they like, were really like, at their like best in, in 14 and 15 yeah yes and, and 16 because the Clippers were able to get to the basket and they would just get stripped. There would be quick hands. They would turn it over. Guys like Jalen Williams would just kind of think Jalen Williams had three blocks in that decisive third quarter. All of them kind of just coming from behind on guys who felt they had layups. Like I think he got a Vita Zubots a couple of times. You know, Zubots and Russell Westbrook were probably the <laughs> primary culprits for the Clippers in terms of just missing shots around the room. And it, you know, it felt like the Clippers could get there. Maybe they would get an offensive rebound and try to go for a putback but they would end up like getting into the paint and just desperately struggling in the decisive third quarter the clippers were two of ten at the rim and oh for five upper paint they actually were four of five for mid-range i think Kawhi had all of those makes but it was remarkable and then the thunder are one of the best maybe the best running team in the nba and so whenever there was a block or a steal they just would easily beat the clippers down the floor uh, for layups thunder also went crazy from three uh, going five of seven from downtown four of six above the break they hit a couple of transition threes that were big you know giddy hits one dort hits one i think shea was wide open on one as well so but that was what really stuck out to me is you had this ostensibly older team just getting sped up so much and and other than Kawhi attacking mismatches getting to his spot and shooting from mid-range they just were wild in that third quarter in part due to Westbrook who I mean I can't give OKC all the credit Westbrook just smoked maybe three layups where he was just wide open and had gotten there Uh, but yeah it was really the activity of the Thunder and then how quickly they got out and transition I thought that was what was decisive in what ended up being a blowout. I think there was one other big tactical element, and this ended up being a factor in the, uh, I did a Discord chat the morning after this game, and um, and somebody brought this up, is that Mark Dagnall made a rotational change for the second half of this game, yeah. and I thought it made a big difference, and that was Isaiah Joe opening and not Josh Giddy. And Joe, it wasn't that he was drilling his threes in this one. One of the things that he did, and again, you talked about the Clippers speeding up on offense, but this has put them out of sorts on defense is that Josh Giddy in the main structure of OKC's offense when he's out there with J-Dub and when he's out there with Shea he doesn't have as much to do and he's less dangerous with the stuff he's doing than their other guys are so you can put someone a little less potent defending him and what happened was in part because sometimes it was Harden so it was a few different guys Isaiah Joe to his immense credit is and I mean this may even be going back to some of the time in Philly and everything else it's just that he's doing better at other things and shooting since then 
he's very active when he's not involved in the primary action. And so there were two plays during that stretch where he's just cuts under the basket and no one reacts. And so it's not even a circumstance where OKC was out overpowering or, oh, it was their overwhelming athleticism. It was no paralleling the Clippers. And of course, we've said this about the Celtics. Having five players that you have to actively guard makes life so much harder on a team that doesn't play five guys that are actively good on defense and that plays players in Harden and Westbrook who are inattentive in a help capacity. Well, and actually, I thought it was Kawhi, too, who got beaten a couple sure. of times. He, he, in fact, I would say three times. One time, they run a Spain pick and roll, and he pre-switches. He was on Isaiah Joe. I thought that was a mistake to have him on Isaiah Joe. I'm not sure why they went that way to have their second-best help defender guarding the other team's best shooter. Maybe he just got stuck there a lot of times due to OKC's transition. But yeah, Kawhi just tries to sl- step up towards the top on, on a Spain pick and roll and Joe just cuts right behind him for a, a dunk he got two dunks in the half court Isaiah Joe by the way has really improved his body too like he's takes a ton of charges but he also he's got more athleticism than people realize like he's just crushing like big two-handed dunks along the baseline on these plays uh and then there's another play where o- Aaron Wiggins dropped it but they ran a nice little screen action and uh involving Kawhi they don't communicate and Aaron Wiggins just got wide open under the basket and just flubbed the pass so he could have had a layup as well so uh, I thought that the Clippers defensive communication was just extremely poor part of that is that OKC puts guys into uncomfortable positions right and once you take Josh Giddy out and they had Zubats on him then they tried Zubats on Chet Holmgren obviously that enables Chet Holmgren to potentially get going from three where he was three of six from downtown leading a in fact they had three separate guys who were three of six from downtown including Shea and Dort 17 to 35 overall then they try to hide Zubats bots on Dort and keep him out of some of the main actions and that just got a little more difficult as well but of course when Shea, Dort, Holmgren are hitting shots that's going to make the opponent's life so much more difficult um but yeah I thought the Clippers defensively in the half court they had you know even in that third quarter probably just like four flubs where they just let guys get wide open layups due to miscommunications and OKC does cause those but if you're a veteran team like you just have to be better than that it's also why I'm I'm really interested in some of the configurations that Mark Dagnall can go to because you don't have to you know like you don't have to start Isaiah Joe you don't have to do that all the time but it's something that you can use when you want to and I've levied the criticism of Josh Giddy, you know even though he's doing better from three like he there were times that OKC that that he was just getting wide open threes because the Clippers didn't care and he was one for three overall in this game and you know it it just it it has these other spillover effects in terms of how the other team defends him and and Giddy's a talented player in his own right it's just that what he does isn't as necessary in that and one of the other striking things I talked about the athleticism difference between these two teams and kind of my intro on it 11 blocks and nine steals for the Thunder, a lot of which occurred during that third quarter compared to two blocks and six steals for the Clippers. And they were surprising people. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, J-Dub had a series of impactful blocks during the third quarter. Chet Holmgren had a couple and they were playing really hard. They weren't giving up on plays, which is a notorious, like not only a Clippers thing at times, but also a Harden thing at times. Um, Paul George can like that can be a flaw of his and moments, but generally he's okay. Uh, there. And so that was one thing that really stuck out to me. And then one of my favorite stories of this game was 
the like the mano a mano at times of Zubats and Chet Holmgren. And so Zubats, when he's playing with Harden, they were doing a lot of the like contest or just get down the floor and do a post, do a seal on whoever is around. And so Zubats was getting fouled. He was getting opportunities there. And, you know, Holmgren, that's sometimes it was him, but a lot of times it was just the random person who's down there, whether it was J-Dub or it was Isaiah Joe in this, I think it was in the second quarter, it was Joe a couple times. And so you're like, oh, man, Zubat's like, that's going to be a big problem for them. And, you know, at 13 and 12 and then Holmgren, especially in that third quarter, like when Zubat's doesn't have another place to be, he takes a couple of threes. And then there was one play where I just go, oh, that this is where things get fun, where Holmgren, it wasn't pushing in transition. It was pushing in semi transition. So basically the Clippers were back. But Zubats doesn't pick Chet Holmgren up at the three-point line. And so Holmgren just goes, screw it. I'm just going to dribble as hard as I freaking can until somebody stops me. And he finishes past Zubats. And it's like, oh, yeah, you can use, you know, it's sort of like we talk about with Giannis and various other players at times. You don't have to use space to just take the shot. You can use space to build up ahead of steam and use your athleticism advantage to generate something else. And for Holmgren, like, he's a smart player. He understands his limitations better than, like, any young big that I've almost ever seen but using his strengths is another thing that Holmgren does well yeah and Zubats like there's one play early in the third where Zubats just boxes out Holmgren on the offensive glass and gets one of those two-handed cram dunks but there were probably four plays where he got the ball underneath and got stopped from behind him some of that was Jalen Williams check got him uh, as well so Zubats has 13 and 12 he's got four offensive rebounds he's 5 and 12 from the field and in 29 minutes and that's just not enough for to really make up for the advantages that OKC has in terms of their speed and athleticism, even if they don't have that sort of power rebounder. And so I, so I think against this team, like the Clippers are kind of caught, I think a little bit, and this has been a, a big theme for us. They're kind of caught between beating people with size and beating people with spreading the floor and skill and using the wings where going up against OKC, they're not like their inside dominance wasn't enough at least in this game obviously things could change in the playoffs if they're more locked in but wasn't enough in this game like they kind of have to go big right they just don't really have the talent to go small against a team like OKC because then OKC has Chet out there they just they're just more used to playing with a bunch of space they benefit more from playing with a bunch of space and then going up against a Minnesota who they got beat by before the break they don't really like their big lineups are still like they're getting beaten at both ends of the spectrum against some of these good teams I think we saw it a little bit against the Lakers to it in that Mm -hmm. loss so it'd be interesting to see like Kawhi Leonard though I think the last thing I want to talk about in this game and the the Clippers by the way to give their stats they are still 37 and 18 although they've cooled off a little bit since that big Grammy road trip four and three in their last seven fourth in the NBA net rating their fourth on offense with a 121 and ninth on defense with a 114 Uh, by the way what we should have said about Minnesota too they have the number one defense that number one defense is by three points per 100 like okay right and OKC is four on defense but they're a 112 uh, minnesota's a 108 um but the clippers still 56 win projection they will be making the playoffs uh, and so that of course is only one game behind the thunder and minnesota so it's still of course uh, is anyone's race for that number one seed but the thunder went hard for this one as you noted taking josh giddy out of the starting lineup in the second to get this but the last thing i want to talk about in this game was just some of these matchups so both these teams play a lot of matchup basketball the theory of the la clippers in large part is well we're going to put paul george Kawhi Leonard, and james harden out there and you just aren't going to have enough guys to guard these guys and with Kawhi Leonard that was the case 
Nine mm-hmm. to ten from two, and he was fantastic getting to his spot in the third quarter. It really the only Clippers offense that was working well at that point. Uh, only ends up playing thirty-one minutes because it's a blowout. But when he they put Jalen Williams on him, Lou Dort is mostly guarding Harden and the Thunder were willing to switch mostly on off-ball screen so that was probably the Clippers most effective offense was getting Kawhi coming off an off-ball screen getting a Shea Gilgis Alexander switched onto him Giddy when he came in later he was playing more of a conventional pick and roll defense but that was going against some of the Clippers bench units where they felt more comfortable with that and then Kawhi could just get to his spot shoot over Shea Gilgis Alexander no problem Uh, that's something I think they'll continue to go after but I thought Danny that Harden and Paul George the Thunder were really willing to just switch whoever like Chet Holmgren on a Paul George and George beat him one time for like to set up Zubats for a dunk but George was 6 of 16 I just didn't think you know 14 points on 16 shooting possessions I didn't think that you know like Chet Holmgren guarding Paul George was like fine for me if I'm the Thunder it was striking and also Harden you know being able to switch there Harden 5 of 9 from the field and 2 assists and 3 turnovers so it wasn't like he was dominating in some of those matches they're not going to let Harden play conventional pick and roll, which is where he's at his best and also where, where Zubat's going to be at his best. Exactly. And so I, I thought that there was a lot, a lot there that was really notable. And if this ends up being a series, the idea you've, invoke this a lot over the years and i think it's right that Ty Lu can be a pretty good like uh, adaptation coach but he doesn't always start in the best place that could be a real challenge against the thunder because mark dagnalt is a very good starting coach and so if they can get there and okc can be a little bit more malleable we saw that in the third quarter when they went to a different lineup so yeah i think that's a really important point and that the clippers don't generate those advantages against those players as much that could also be a thread i didn't watch that minnesota game as closely where minnesota like they have good size at some of their positions and you know like if paul george can win games for you but is he going to do that you know three three times in a seven game series as an offensive player i'm a little bit skeptical and then there were other points and let's see you know i want to get a larger sample for him after the break like did the time off like help this groin issue that that he's potentially yeah for sure and then there were times where shea looked really there were a couple plays in the second and third where it's like he just left paul george in the dust and you're like oh shit well and and they didn't really i mean all right if you if he they get Kawhi switched onto him maybe Kawhi could handle shea okay but you know harden obviously just cannot oh oh I, that, what, one of my notes is just you can't put james harden on shea gildas alexander like it is it is an it is a failure of a matchup for for the clippers yeah and harden just because shea with his quickness like harden's weakness is laterally and the way shea is so slithery we've talked about this before like you can't really like use your strength to try to defend him because he'll either draw a foul or he'll just kind of bounce off you and slip past anyway well uh, andy has such a reactive handle that harden's anticipation yeah. doesn't work because Harden has these ideas of like what a guy is going to do and against Shea Gildas Alexander that stuff doesn't matter yeah and then obviously if the Thunder are trying to get to the rim Zubats is getting spaced out a little bit I thought Terrence Mann really wasn't particularly able to handle Shea either and hey there's not that many people who can in mm-hmm. this OKC system particularly when you got these guards running in to fake a screen and then you consider the amount of spacing Norm Powell uh, he got completely embarrassed on this one drive by Shea where Shea was just totally under control just sends Norm Powell flying and he's got all day to just make an elbow jumper like that that definitely made the highlights uh, you know Amir Coffey can't guard Shea either uh, Jalen Williams was had another ultra efficient game 18 points six assists his passing remember we early in the season I talked about like his passing not being that important 
impressive. Like those stats have really improved since then as well. He's another guy who's just going to physically dominate some of these Clippers players with his speed and or strength. So yeah, I'm, you know, I think the I Clippers, have, uh, yeah, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. I have two more things. I, I, I think I'm not sure what their solution is going to be to guard these guys. I think it's going to probably be just a lot of double teaming, getting the ball out of Shea's hands, trying to force them to beat them. But that double teaming doesn't work as well when the other team is playing with great spacing. So I just, I didn't love on either end, just the individual one-on-one matchups, which both of these teams are relying on a lot offensively. The Thunder to me just looked like they are in much better shape going against the Clippers and vice versa. I agree. Uh, so the two other things I want to mention, one of them is in passing. It was a little bewildering to see Gordon Hayward in a Thunder jersey. I kept on trying to figure out who it was and it was Gordon Hayward. He was he was fine, you know, didn't didn't do a lot in his 14 minutes yeah, of action. This is his first time he's played since like end of December, basically. Correct. And then the other one, it's a small sample size, 169 possessions, cleaning the glass. Shea, J-Dub, Chet Holmgren, Isaiah Joe, and Lou Dort, which is the lineup that started that third quarter. Oh, you know, a light plus 40.8 net rating, 140.8 offensive rating, 100 defensive rating. Again, small sample, not building too much out of it, but that group is ludicrously hard to guard and they, they can defend pretty capably. I mean, there are teams that will be able to exploit that. Like I would be very interested to see. And the Clippers will try to go after Joe more next time. Sure. But they're, they're going to play a lot better. I, I am certainly not saying like, oh, I'm for sure picking the Thunder in a series over the Clippers right now. Absolutely, absolutely not. And, what and stuck like, out to me about this game. I would love to see that that fivesome face off against Denver because Denver has a lot more positional size and some of the other things would be really, really fascinating if we get end up getting that opportunity. I don't know if we will. And so, you know, we're worth filing away. Are we ready to move on to number four? Well, the Denver Nuggets, we're not going to talk about them since we're going to that game right. later on. So who is the current fifth seed in the Western Conference, Annie? By a half game, it is the New Orleans Pelicans. The New Orleans mm-hmm. Pelicans are 34 and 23. And part of how they've improved their standing is six and two since the last 15 and 60. Plus 4.0 net rating is ninth in the NBA, 13th on offense, 7th on defense, and BPI projects them to finish appropriately in the 5th spot in the Western Conference, 49 and 33. Yeah, that, and particularly given that some of these teams in the West are falling off a little bit, and that the Warriors and Lakers are playing pretty well. Now, one of these teams, like, everyone is pretty much healthy right now, except for Phoenix with the Bradley Beal, but the main guys on in this race right now like basically the whole the whole west is uh, top 10 is healthy right now i thought it was very interesting that adam silver said when he was talking about the 65 game rule that they've had way fewer injuries this year and that's part i think of why this year has been so interesting and competitive again that could just be luck uh it could be guys trying to play through stuff more due to the 65 games or just generally the, the participation policy or just trying to change the culture of the league or whatever it is but as of right now you know they're really are not any major players injured on the top 10 in the West other than Bradley Beal. That's basically it at the moment. And so those 10 teams, and I think we're going to see a pretty similar sprint to the finish as we did last year. And, you know, that might be an interesting Wapo someday of like, what does the 10th seed in the West end up finishing with uh, in terms of or, wins? Or how many how many more wins is the 10th seed in the West going to have than the 10th seed in the East? Yeah, particularly with Trey Young going under the knife. Uh, and he's going to be out for at least four weeks with this uh, pinky finger injury on his left hand, torn ligament. So the Pels have really been under the radar, you know, at 34 and 23 and and the fifth seed. And there's nobody. It's funny because 
like there's nobody you look at on their team where you're like, oh, that guy's having a great season. But they just have so much depth and they've been, again, largely healthy. The other thing that's weird about them is their starting lineup sucks, but all of their depth lineups look, look really good. And I think part of the reason why, you know, the Pels, I think, got a lot more attention for where they were. I think it was either second or third in the West last year before Zion goes down, in part because Zion was dominating. And he was, then he has the hamstring, doesn't play again, but he was getting MVP buzz, I think even deservedly so. Maybe not, you know, MVP consideration top five at that point. But he just hasn't been as good uh, so far this year, despite the fact that they've been doing more of the point Zion stuff. Andrew Lopez had this stat that when Zion brings the ball up the floor, the Pels have the best offensive rating of when any player brings the ball up the floor. Now that's generally probably because they're going to run a play for him when he specifically brings the ball up the floor. You know, I don't think he's like so amazingly uh, grabbing going all the time because you have to grab before you can go uh, with the defensive <laughs> rebound. Uh, they try to get to the point Zion stuff in their loss to the Heat on Friday, but the Heat are really well set up to defend the Pels because of just the way that they can go with multiple looks. They can go zone and they also just prioritize protecting the paint as much as any team. And the Pels, of course, prioritize getting into the paint. So Zion was kind of flummoxed. Ultimately, though, Zion just not playing as well as he did before the injury last year. As we look at some of the stats for him, you know, whether it's play type stuff, whether it's just the overall top line numbers, like what sticks out to you in terms of just this gentle decline that he has experienced where I think he just overall hasn't been dominating. I want to get into where he has fallen off since last year. Last year, Zion Williamson was one of the, you know, he, he was one of the high, he's been a high volume isolation player each of the last couple of years. And, and isolation, you know, generally speaking, it's not the most efficient form of offense. Even it's not even the most efficient form of half court offense for most teams because you, you, you're never going to isolate in transition. Even so, last year, he was one of the best isolation players in the NBA when the opportunity presented itself and when they went to it. 1.16 points per possession that's you know 90th percentile and then of course if you scale on volume and everything else like that that 1.16 is down to 1.03 and that's that goes from being like ridiculous have to kind of play in your defense around it to still a pain in the ass but not exceedingly daunting does that make sense to you it does and that really just based on what i've seen this year matches up a, a lot with the film like it's i always love it when the stats in the film are in concert like this and so even just going back to the start of the year like you just aren't quite as many blow buys for zion williams williamson he's not just quite as explosive his percentage of dunks is down a little bit not a crazy amount actually not as much as i would have expected from last year although certainly well down from the the heights he was at in his first years that'll happen for a lot of guys although in zion's case it's not like he's taking more of his game to the perimeter necessarily mm -hmm. uh, but i think he when guys kind of sit on his left hand he is still going left more often i think that that's been kind of obvious to me and then you know he just hasn't been able to counter as easily so i thought these were interesting stats from synergy you wouldn't think this, but he basically drives left and right about equal percentages of the time. Last year, he was 1.1 driving left, and this is out of isolation, post-ups, whatever, any kind of face-up drives. You go left or does he go right? 1.1 points per possession driving left, pretty awesome as a score because these are all half-court situations. But when he drove right, it was 1.3 points <sighs> per possession, and he did that 44% of the time. This year, he's still better driving right, but that's only about one point per possession. And then driving left, He's slightly under one point per possession. And so what that tells me is last year, that left-hand drive was so devastating that guys
guys would just have to sit on that so much that anytime he drove right, it would just be a complete blow by and he could finish, even though he doesn't really have much of a right hand, he's able to just get to the corner of the backboard with his left and finish or, or get fouled. That hasn't been the case as much this year. That's really another thing. Yeah. Uh, another thing that sticks out to me is where he's getting his shots, right? Basketball reference breaks it down zero to three feet. That's basically at the rim. And we've seen a steady decline throughout the four years that he's actually played his rookie year, probably remembered a little bit unfairly for his struggles in the bubble his rookie year 18 percent of his field goal attempts were dunks and 74 percent of his shots at the rim he did actually shot the worst percentage at the rim that year because he was just kind of figuring it out and bashing his head in, into the wall and uh but he still shot 67 percent at the rim that year and he just was creating so many shots then that goes down to 70 percent of his shots at the rim the next year so 74 percent his first year then 70 62 percent of his shots at the rim last year 57 percent of his shots at the rim this year and basically all of that change has been him taking more from the three to 10 foot range. And it's not like he's, you know, he has like a great jump hook game or he's like, you know, faking guys out with his back to the basket with footwork and getting to a little fadeaway or something like that. Like this is basically that when I watch him and this is now, you know, 38% of his shots uh, are away from the rim in the upper paint. And that was, that's double the percentage, 18% that he was his rookie year. And he's not shooting a great percentage. Or he's shooting actually the worst percentage uh, of since his rookie year, only 40% on those three to 10 foot shots. And that's because he's trying to drive. He's not getting there. And he has to, he has pretty good touch from those rings, but he's taking like really difficult, like contested floaters and hooks on the move, like over generally a center. And those are just really tough shots. And the reason that he's taking more of those, like, I mean, let's remember he's got more talent and probably more shooting around him than he's ever had. The reason he's taking more of those is because he's just not beating his man. He's not getting all the way to the backboard to finish. He, he kind of has to go more at an angle away from the rim and he's shooting like these tough fadeaways and floaters, which his touch is still very impressive, particularly for a guy who has no shooting touch outside of that range. But he just is not, I mean, this is age 23 season. He's just not the same physical force. And you just, you see it in the stats, you see it watching him. And then I remember his rookie year and his second year, it didn't matter who he was playing. He was just going to get generate a ton of shots at the rim. You know, we're talking about like him, Shaq, and Giannis is like the biggest shot generators at the basket that we've ever seen. You just can't keep him away from there. And maybe if he went up against that era's Bucks team or the Lakers that won the championship with Anthony Davis and like JaVale McGee out there. And I, I mean, those are basically the only two that I remember him playing where he's like, oh, no, he can't just do whatever he wants. Like he's actually going to get stopped by these guys. Now, just that list is a lot longer. Mm -hmm. like, certainly like going up against the Clippers for example in the Pels win there he had like a he had dominating games but it kind of takes the right matchup for him to have a dominating game at the basket now in a way that it didn't before where there's you like okay if there, you're one of the two or three best rim protecting teams in the league then okay maybe you can stop this guy but everyone else can't now it's like okay you know he's a problem for some of these teams but other of these teams like yeah, they're gonna be okay as you said at the outset uh so yeah by the way really really glad to uh you know be positive on the number five seed Pels here but I think you know as I, I, mean, I dug into it I wanted to see what the story was with him and whether we were seeing some signs that he was getting back to those levels I just I think he's gotten a little better as the season has gone on but uh he still has a long way to go to me to be like your best offensive player on a really good playoff team but something that is positive for the pelicans just to kind of transition out this would be the second straight year that they've been top 10 on defense and that would be really potentially important for them and last year you know 
this is a weird parallel. You know, last year they had opponents shot the worst percentage from three in the entire league against the Pelicans. They're not giving up. It's not the worst percentage this year. It's the third worst. So there is always that worry of regression to the mean and everything else there. And they're giving up a ludicrously high 40.7% of opponent shots are three pointers this year. So can can you Jedi mind trick this? Maybe. But that is going to be something to watch in a playoff series, depending on who they face. I do expect New Orleans to make the postseason, but who they face, whether that's going to be there. And one of the teams they could face is the Dallas Mavericks. One last thing, actually, uh, on the Pels and, and opponent shooting. I've talked about my theory that if you pack the paint so much that you're kind of forcing opponents to shoot more threes than they want to from maybe worse shooters than they would prefer that you know perhaps there is something the to the idea that you can maybe you're not controlling it maybe you're not making them miss but just simply by force like you got to get a shot every time and not giving it through and they just have to take more threes from more players than they really want to that that you know there could be something real there and you know i think we've seen that from a lot of these teams that just give up the most threes like i think there is at least somewhat of a correlation where if you're forcing more threes some of those start to just be from worse shooters or more out of rhythm or late in the clock or whatever but with respect to the pels here's what seth's stats have to say about them give you a few of these here in theory the three-pointers that the pels are giving up are pretty good ones Uh, they are not the highest but one of the highest teams in the league opponents are expected to shoot 36.3 percent per seth's stats and there's, there's not the hugest range there in the league i mean it basically goes from the best quality threes being given up are San Antonio and the Lakers giving up a 36.5%. And the worst quality threes being given up are Indiana, who really likes to run teams off the line at 357 So it's only 0.8% difference up and down the league in terms of when you look at the quality of threes being given up from where they're being taken and how contested they are. So that's not an indicator. It's not like the Pels are giving up like really difficult threes. So that, that might be they're giving up some of the easier threes in the league. But again, that is a pretty limited i think it's telling that there's only 0.8 percent difference there when i mean what's the difference between like the best and worst team three point percentage given up it's probably like six or seven percent right like one the worst is at like 40 percent and the best like 34 percent so so far for this year the difference um so right now the rockets are giving up 34.8 percent on opponent threes and the kings are giving up 40.7 percent it's pretty impressive that the kings are, are have a respectable defense despite that number and Weren't they they were towards the bottom last year too right i think they were the kings yeah they, yeah, they had yeah. A, a pretty rough uh yeah, it was 37 7 last year 40.7 this year yeah and then if you look at the percentage of three-pointers that are uncontested miami is the best in the league they allow 46 0.8% of opponent threes uncontested. Worst in the league is Memphis at 58.7%. And the Pels are a little bit worse than average, 53%. So nothing really that sticks out there particularly either. And then opponent shooting on uncontested threes is 35.6%. And that is the lowest in the NBA. So opponents are just missing uncontested threes against New Orleans. 
And the fact that this has been two years in a row, I mean, we've seen teams like the Celtics kind of have a run with that where opponents shoot worse from three, but it's really hard to find precisely what they're doing here. Uh, Opponents also are shooting the worst in the NBA on team created threes by the opponents. So spot up threes, basically. So I, I, I still would have to come down despite my theory that just forcing them to take more of them makes it more difficult and maybe for worse mm-hmm. shooters that this is mostly luck that they've have had this low opponent three-point percentage. All right, at thanks for bearing minimum, with at, us for that. Yeah, At bare minimum, there should be some regression to the mean, whether it is luck or it isn't, just because there's such an outlier. <laughs> um, it, 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 I mean, they're because they're on uncontested threes, they're a full percentage point clear of anyone else in the league. It just doesn't yeah. feel like that can be sustained. Okay, who's so next they, here? At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today nate we're going to dallas you want to give their stats yeah the dallas mavericks are on fire right now finally getting healthy pj washington said he experienced the first four game winning streak of his career that was not sure he'd had like four or five of those uh, in charlotte but they are 33 and 23 it seemed like maybe the wheels were falling off at 26 and 23 they have since won seven straight 12th in net rating at plus 2.2 seventh on offense 19th on defense they project for the sixth seed at 48 wins that's only one behind the pelicans right now again this is this tranche here in the west it could go basically anywhere but uh they are now four and oh since the deadline they've been absolutely killing teams danny 35 point win over the thunder which began with a 47 30 first quarter that was right out of the break then they had a comeback win over the whiz a 23 point win over the spurs which the second and third quarters were 63 33 combined for the mavericks and then a 10 point win over the suns who are as we noted without bradley beal during this stretch which yes only four games the dallas mavericks have a plus 20.9 cleaning the glass net rating fifth on offense and second on defense overall it is a seven game win streak that the other the other three games were road wins over the sixers nets and knicks fair to note that those games had some pretty shorthanded opponents that was the sixers like before they got melton and of course no joel and Bede, before they got melton and batum back and the knicks dealing with no Ananobi, no julius randall though those guys are of course still on the shelf and we are going to get a potentially clarifying stretch a big road trip for the dallas mavericks this week we're recording this on sunday before their game against the indiana pacers which will be a, a early game so that that some of you will have already known what happened there and then at cleveland at toronto at boston and the cleveland toronto games are not only a back-to-back but it's the back-to-back in kind of the way you don't want it as a team where the harder game is first you kind of rather have the, the you, eh, i guess maybe that is the way you'd want it in terms of if your goal is to win both it probably is that way the raptors are not always the most competitive right now 
And a big story to watch for the Dallas Mavericks right now, part of this story, is that the Daniel Gafford minutes are going really well. Remember that Derek Lively was out with a nasal fracture for part of this. And then since the break, they've been playing not together, but they've been sharing the center minutes. And when Gafford has been on the floor for the Mavericks, plus 10 net rating in 183 possessions, and that's mostly fueled not by an elite offense. They've been league average in offense, but an elite defense. They've been a 106 defensive rating there. And yes, as you would expect, some of that is opponent shooting luck. Opponents are making only 30% of their threes when Daniel Gafford is on the floor. I do not credit Daniel Gafford for that. However, I do credit him in significant part in these minutes for they protected the rim extremely well, both from an opponent frequency perspective and an opponent field goal percentage at the rim perspective. That That is Daniel Gafford. Um, but there is one kind of canary in the coal mine in the Gafford minutes that I'm seeing, which is, again, small sample size theater here where, I, again, he's only played 183 possessions with the maps. But I talked about how this has been dominant defense. That is entirely opponent effective field goal percentage. It is not, they're not forcing any turnovers. They're like bottom, bottom of the barrel in terms of forcing turnovers. Weirdly terrible on the defensive glass, considering they're playing Gafford and PJ Washington together. They are, yeah. they can't be smaller. Neither of those guys are actually great rebounders, despite Correct. The, they both have like pretty good size. Yeah. And, and, and so I do think that they can, can and are forcing a kind of a useful product, like a useful opponent shot mix with Gafford because they're deterring shots at the rim and everything else. But it's notoriously a really tough tightrope to walk when the thing your defense is doing well is opponent effective field goal percentage because there's so much variance that can come with that. And if their you know, opponents start shooting better than 30% on threes, it will look worse for them. But yeah. of that, course, now so, if I could break in there, I, I think, yeah. yeah, like they're never going to force any turnovers with this team. I mean, maybe if you throw Derek Jones Jr. and XM out there, like you might be able to force a, th- a few, but it, or maybe Josh Green can get any guys a little bit, but th- that's never going to be a strength of this team uh, with Luca and Kyrie and a center. But to get that 48 minutes of rim protection, although in some of these games, they actually are going to Kleba at center as well and playing him next to PJ Washington, which kind of gives them five out, but also you know a reasonable amount of size uh just to have enough there i mean like we talked about how when when lively is out that they were just getting completely destroyed at the rim defensively but if you can just have something that you can like kind of rely on with what these guys can do offensively and then also quite frankly gaffer i mean he's got a 22 usage in his 81 minutes if you have him and lively just playing with luca always having a lob threat on the floor for luca if if you want it and you know getting at least a few offensive rebounds as well so like those guys are going to be so efficient that they're going to boost your offense at least some if luca can set them up like they're going to shoot you know 65 70 percent those guys and then to just be like all right we're not going to get destroyed at the rim let's see if you guys we're going to protect the rim let's see if you guys can keep up with with our three-point shooting like i think that is probably the best chance with this overall group of making some noise to just say yeah you know we're gonna at least take something away because they've just had too many moments this year where they just couldn't take anything away defensively and now that we've taken something away you're gonna give up everything to us so we are just gonna be able to outscore you at that point now that we just have some competence at the rim defensively. it's really raised their floor and that's exciting because they have a good enough offense that you don't have to be you can be living in a different space as dallas because they have 
these dynamic creators, they, their expectations for where their offense is going to be. And as I mentioned, they've been league average so far with Gafford on the four. I expect that to be significantly better moving forward, even with regression to the mean defensively because teams are going to hit threes. They'll have to play play in half court more. I don't care. They can be good in that circumstance. A couple other threads that I wanted to touch on with the Mavericks because they're having such an interesting run. They've, of course, made some significant changes during the deadline. And so the Mavericks don't really have that many high volume three point attempt guys. You know, Luca's taking a ton right now. He's taking 10 per 36 and making 38% on the season. Hardaway Jr.'s attempt rate is actually higher than that, but he's not making quite as many. But generally speaking, you know, now they're, they've transitioned that other than Kleba, and Kleba's only taking four per 36. Like his attempt rate has gone down. He's making them at a respectable rate. Like you have to still guard him out there, but how are teams in the playoffs going to respond to the combination? You know, now that, you know, Seth Curry and Grant Williams are gone of, you know, if that's okay, it's Josh green, it's Dante Exum, it's Derek Jones jr. In those spots. And Derek Jones jr. Is making 34% of his threes. Josh green is making 42% of his threes on this year. But that I talked about how like raising the, the Mavericks have raised their floor on defense. And overall, I do wonder, and there are little stretches, even of these games, they're playing super well, where it's like, ah, oh, is this really going to work? I know they blitz the thunder. Is this really going to work? against teams that are better suited to slow down their their best stuff yeah it's going to be fascinating because even if you go back to like the days when they made it to the conference finals they have worse shooting than even like reggie bullock and dorian finney smith were giving them at that time now can pj washington fill in there and kleba is just never going to be a, a high volume guy he's probably worse than he was at that point in time though he still is just a tremendously valuable player now even in his age 32 season and actually makes them but just doesn't take a ton and who knows whether he'll actually be healthy and josh green i mean maybe he's at the point now where teams aren't going to just completely leave him like they did two years ago but and you would like to be able to minimize tim hardaway jr's role and he's still not even like that crazy of a shoot right like he's kind of more of a 37 percent guy on high volume than just like a crazy 40 percent guy but they also happen to have Kyrie irving now which they didn't have before so yeah I, I, it's really interesting i mean i i think you know they are going to really because that's the only strategy is to let those guys beat because especially now that they have these lob threats at the rim uh and i mean the other problem too is like okay you might say uh, our i guess you're just going to start double teaming luca i mean i think his him shooting 38 percent from three probably hasn't gotten enough attention this year because the mavs has still kind of been you know they haven't had their team and like then they're struggling until very recently but if he really is going to shoot that well like it there's just there's no option other than just like straight up double teaming him and hoping to give up an open three to, to somebody else yeah th this will of course come up in our next awards pod whenever that is but luca currently 62 percent true shooting on 36 usage with oh yeah you know nine th assists per 36 minutes like he is having a ludicrous offensive season uh, one other quick update before we leave the maps Jaden hardy had a brutal offensive start to the year wasn't hitting anything it was below 40 percent from the field low 30s on threes in kind of october november combined and has really turned it on after that hardy shooting 39 percent from three in january and 48 percent in just eight games in february but also 52 percent from the field in the february small sample so his season-long efficiency still isn't great, 52% true shooting overall, but at least he's getting closer to his rookie numbers there. And so for Hardy, like they don't need him to do a ton when Kyrie and Luka are healthy, but the idea that he was 
and is a significantly better player than the start of the year is encouraging. Let's move on now to the Sacramento Kings, and they really, really have outperformed <laughs> where their point differential would indicate 32 and 33, three and four since we last checked in on them. They are actually in the negative, despite being nine games over 500, they have a negative 0.4 net rating, 19th in the NBA. They're in the seventh seed currently, 14th on offense. That has been a disturbing decline. 21st on defense. I think they were 24th by the end last year. They project for 45 and 37 records. So that means that BPI is projecting them to go about what you might expect for a negative 0.4 net rating team to go 13 and 14 the rest of the way. That would put them in the nine seed and uh, BPI giving them a 49% chance at the playoffs to get a bit into a little bit more. Some of these numbers last year, they had a plus 2.4 differential 47 win team. They went 48 and 34 this year. They have the differential of a 40 win team and they are outperforming that by plus 5.2 wins. Is that what they've done already or what they would do over 82? I forget that. I think it's I what can't remember already, how right? clean you guys Let, calculate. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll figure that out. No, that's what they've already amassed five <laughs> yeah. more wins than would have been expected. Plus 5.2. Number two, Utah is 3.6 wins more than expected. So that is that is a crazy number for this time in the season. I mean, this is that's the number you would expect to see by the end of the season, maybe for you know three uh, three four five wins more than expected, and well, they've and- got that already. You know, through like little over 50 games here and Nate one of the things that's wild about that is you would think oh man that means the Clippers or sorry not the Clippers the Kings must be like the best clutch team in the league and of course Seth incorporates this better with like how you get in there Kings in the traditional way of doing it you know games within five in the last five minutes plus 8.2 net rating is quite good but it's also 12th in the league and they're 16 and 10 overall in those games but they have been able to swing enough and it it has been significant it's really more that when they've lost they've gotten completely blown out exactly and so one of the things i want to look at is you know they that differential going from plus 2.4 to negative 0.4 so that's a 2.8 shift in for a team that is similar though not identical to last year they haven't dealt with with some stuff and what has changed big first of all what's changed big picture well their defensive rating hilariously is worse per 100 possessions but because this is a stronger offensive environment they've gone from 25th to 21st just because you know there are more teams further below uh, biggest differences in their defensive profile um, is that they're fouling a lot more. They were 11th. They had the 11th lowest opponent free throw attempt this last year, and they now have the fifth highest, which is a concern. Um, and even though opponents shot 37.7% on threes last year, that is now 40.7. So that's best. Yeah, in the I NBA. mean, that's, that's the one reason to think that they may be able to somewhat maintain this pace. It just that that's going to normalize for them. And another really encouraging thing. The Kings are actually giving up the 10th lowest opponent field goal percentage at the rim and the attempt rate is down too. So that's doing a little bit better. Um, so credit to them there, but as you mentioned in kind of the intro to them, the bigger issue is dropping from number one to number 14 in offense. A couple of different things that stuck out to me there. Huge decline in free throw attempt rate. So 22.7 
per 100 field goal attempts last year was good enough for fourth in the league. That has dropped by five per 100, and that's dropped them from fourth to 24th in the league with largely the same personnel. And their decrease, as you would expect for a team dropping like this in effective field goal percentage, is interesting because the only zone where they're way worse from a like field goal percentage perspective is long twos. They were 44% last year, below 40% this year. But those are less than 7% of the shots. That's not where the Kings attempts are coming from, just like pretty much every modern team. But they've gone from ninth to 15th in location effective field goal percentage because they're now fifth lowest in rim frequency when they were league average last year. So they're getting their shots from worse places, which is notable for them last year. And then to continue another thread of like following up on a player who had an unusual start to the year, we'll remember in early January that Kevin Herter was coming off the bench. Chris Duarte was the most common replacement starter for them. And then Duarte got hurt has barely played since, even though he's back from injury. And Kevin Herter just got his place back in the starting lineup. They didn't go to Malik Monk. And since then, Herter started all 19 games he's played in, 13 points, three assists, four rebounds. And he's making 43% of his threes. Um, And that, you know, so he's been around 40%, a little bit better than that in January and February. So basically, he had this brutal December where Kevin Herter couldn't make anything relative to his standards. And then he's just become basically the same player that he was before, for better or worse, never gets to the line, drills his threes, has still limited defensive player, but has kept up some of the twos in part because of the Kings spacing and how their offense flows with Sabonis at the top of the key. So EPM is more skeptical on Herter. They're saying that he's worse this year than last year, largely because of that a little bit of an offensive decline. But considering the drama around how are they going to solve this shooting guard problem, the answer was just that the guy was going to play like he's played before. We can finish up here. I I wanted to look into a little bit. You noted that they're doing much better in opponent field goal percentage at the rim, number 10 overall. And I was like, well, how is that possible? Because DeMontis Sabonis, if you look at Seth's stats, is second worst in the entire NBA. Negative 1.7 rim protection wins, which is uh, above only Bobby Portis. Uh, I was going to ask. Yeah, well, and so part of this is based on he adjusts for position and some of these guys, whether they're being considered a, a center or not. Uh, Portis, you know, kind of a forward, kind of a center. Sabonis obviously plays center only, and you know, he's really struggled. He does contest 32% of opponent shots at the rim, which is about average for a center, but on the shots he contests, the opponent shoots 65% at the rim. So, but they got to be getting force and misses from somewhere. And some of these uh, other support players actually have shown some growth. Most impressively, Keegan Murray at forward contests 17% of shots. That's pretty good for a, a guy who's kind of more of a wing player and opponents shoot only 58% when he contests, which again, is pretty good for a wing player. Like that's probably about average for a center. In fact, uh, you mentioned Malik Monk, or, or you're going to at least, uh, you know, I, I think he's shown some growth this year. I thought he was better defensively in the playoffs than he had been he actually contests quite a bit for you know a 6-2 guard again there's probably some luck involved here like these guys don't contest that much but he contests 14 percent of opponent shots that they're in they're shooting 60 percent against him i mean he can really jump they maybe is messing guys up a little bit duarte hasn't played that much but he actually has contested 20 percent of opponent shots at the rim and yeah he's not forcing a, a amazing number of misses but even to just be there and contest like that for a guard that is a huge number to contest 20 percent of opponent shots another guy who's been in and out of the rotation is kian ellis he contests 21% of opponent shots at the room. So it seems like Mike Braun has helped get some of these supporting guys. Uh, now Harrison Barnes doesn't hardly contest at all. He's 14%. So if he's a if he's a power forward, you know, sometimes 
Keegan Murray is the power forward. Sometimes it's Barnes in terms of who they're guarding. I think Murray really, though, probably defends more on the perimeter, I would say, than Barnes at this point. They've deployed Murray as more of a defensive stopper on the perimeter, getting over screens. But, but I, I think there are times that Keegan ends up being the low man, and so sure, that might be sure. how he gets there. Right. And But I, I think that's when you've got Harrison Barnes and Demonis Sabonis in your starting lineup, like two of the worst rim protectors for their positions that we've seen, to have be 10th in opponent field goal shooting at the the rim is impressive and that's how they're doing it getting more contributions from guys that you wouldn't think of as rim protectors but they're at least like you know getting in there sticking their nose in and yeah like they're probably going to get scored on but every little bit makes a difference just quickly on malik monk um epm is more positive on him offensively than last year in part because his assist rate is up to seven and a half per 36 minutes or 5.2 per game if you prefer that and is 26 minutes per game but his overall epm is down because even though with that rim protection is doing well depm has dropped about half a point and so that that that's dropped it down so malik monk having i would say a a similar year to last year though i i think the offensive gains i'm always skeptical of how the Black box metrics, register card defense. So, you know, good year for him. It was surprising that when Herder had his rough stretch, Mike Brown turned to Duarte instead of Malik Monk for the most part. But he's doing well. What do you want? And, I mean, there are big picture questions when we do their offseason preview about how much do they want to spend to keep him? Should other teams be prioritizing Monk? But he is having a good year overall. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today we can stay in the pacific division because the eight seed as we're recording this only i mean they're basically tied it's just that the kings have a better percentage is the phoenix suns 33 and 24 four and three since we last checked in on them they were they lost uh, in dallas always an emotional game when the suns and mavs match up even with the changing iterations although Devin Booker has been his rivalry with Luka Doncic has long been a through line there and of course uh, the Mavs inflicted that defeat on the Suns the in 2022 and the Suns took DeAndre Ayton over Luka Doncic which is one of the worst picks uh, ever uh, probably the only worst one that I could think of recently is taking Marvin Bagley over Luka Doncic <laughs> with the next pick <laughs> which is correct yeah and you know i think there was a point at which people were like oh you know deandre Aiden, he's at least working out I'm like nah it, that hasn't really happened in the end although he did get him he was important getting them to the 21 finals which that that matters that's important it's further than luca has gone 3.6 net rating is number 10 offensive rating eighth 119.1 defense somehow 14th 
That's that's pretty remarkable, Danny. I, I think if you told everyone associated with Phoenix, probably even Frank Vogel, frankly, frankly, Frank Vogel, uh, before the season that they could be 14th on defense, I think they would absolutely be happy with that. And it's instead been the offense that's kind of disappointed uh, to be eighth. They project for 46 wins again. You know, we're talking about a range from 49 to 46 here for these teams that are in this five to eight range. Uh, 67% chance of the playoffs. Can you imagine if they fucking miss the playoffs with this team that they went so far all in on but ultimately and you hate to be in this position given his health record but when bradley beal has been available they've been awesome and when he hasn't they have been you know a relatively middling team it's striking and part of why sun's optimist can continue to be so is because when they've played durant booker and beal together the suns are outscoring points by 12 points per 100 possessions in nine it's about about a thousand nine hundred possessions right now and they're doing that through maintaining a league you know a little bit above average defense you know, one 115.2 is, is it's a little bit better than their their overall number but a ludicrous 127 offensive rating which is 99th percentile and i i don't i can't pull i i didn't pull specific lineups but like it's it might be close to 100th percentile but clean glass doesn't really do that um they've been incredible offensively when those three guys have been together and broadly speaking the Suns have done a really good job offensively when it's been Booker and Durant together and Nobile, which unfortunately has happened more often. That's that's over 1,300 possessions now. Um, and But they have a drop-off offensively. They go from 127 to 121. Still damn good. And the defense is about the same. So you go from a plus 12 net rating to a plus 5. Plus 5 is good enough to be competitive. But you're like, okay, well, you know, the Suns, they're, they are nine games over 500. They have the 10th best net rating. It's like, well, okay, these lineups are really good. Well, what's going on here? And there are a couple things. So one is the Durant-only minutes are – they're both the Durant-only – those have gotten a lot better, and the Booker-only minutes are solid. It's just that there have been kind of more of those than they would want. They've, there's been one star on the floor only far too often than, than they would like. Um, so with Durant, the offense drops, you know, another little step down, 120, and the defense is actually a little bit better, but that is opponent shooting like opponents are only shooting 34% from three. There's no reason to think that that is going to necessarily continue for them. And then with Booker, it's been you you get that regression of the mean on defense, but the offense has been incredible about a 124, which is what people remember. That was a part of what I talked about in Devin Booker's all NBA conversation was that the Booker only minutes hearkening back to DeMar DeRozan a couple. What was that last year? A couple of years ago was there. And then one of the stories for like why it's been so bad. And I remember I'm not putting all this what's in your uh, Beal only and some of the other ones aren't in here is something that the Suns wouldn't have wanted in at all beyond their general play in the fourth quarter is KD Booker and Beal all off the floor. Negative 23 net rating. Offensive rating of 92.8. Yeah, so that's about what I would have expected, honestly. I mean, when you consider who else is still left on that team, you know, if, you, if you're if you parsing out all those. And remember, this is only in the cleaning the glass filter, which takes out garbage time, which is so this is only in what they consider the competitive portions of games where they do that. And that's, you know, having a negative 23 net rating in 250 possessions is devastating if they come in competitive minutes. Yeah, hopefully they won't. Uh, I think that's I mean, we knew. Uh, these guys uh, if they weren't going to be healthy w- wouldn't be this good 
And I think you know, Booker and KD have been healthier than probably you had a right to expect. I think maybe in the end, it was foolish of me to have picked the Suns over and have them in the low 50s for wins, given some of the health issues. But I, I guess I just didn't want to bet on them not being healthy. Uh, Kevin Durant at center is something that Frank Vogel has gone to break glass in case of emergency. Did it a fair amount against Dallas in their loss Drew Eubanks starting to get minimized at least a little bit. Drew Eubanks did not play at all in the second half of their loss to Dallas. And then Yusuf Nurkic basically only played a couple of short stints and only had five points. So Nurkic played 19 and a half minutes. Eubanks played six. And so they went almost half the game with KD at center. A little more viable to do that now with Royce O'Neal available. Royce O'Neal is 6'4", but he also is very strong. So he'll guard the big man a lot of those times and also is capable of doing some switching. They're trying to keep KD obviously out of having to really fight down low with a, a tough guy. He'll, he'll have to do that some and he'll do it, but it's that's not what you want him doing on a possession to possession basis. And also those lineups will work a lot better when you have Bradley Beal out there. And in very limited minutes, it's really only been a couple of games. 69 possessions with KD at center and Royce O'Neal next to him. And some of these minutes are with Josh Okoge and Nasir Little out there. I think part of their thinking is if you're going to play a Little or an Okoge, which you have to because of Bradley Beal being unavailable, that will at least try to spread the floor enough that we can get by offensively. But yeah, they've been uh, 19.1 net rating in those 69 possessions with KD and Royce O'Neal as their four and their five. So maybe a little more something to explore there. I think you just you want that to be an off speed pitch rather than your fastball but the way they were going against dallas and they give up a 16-0 run to start the third quarter against dallas with nurkic out there and that's what leads frank the, Google the, to the, go the, small. the suns have never given up a big run to dallas starters versus starters that's not a thing that i can recall ever happening before <laughs> um and by the way yeah. the full season kevin durant at center so that's just as clean the last identifies positions yeah negative 11.8 net rating because they have a 125 defensive rating and you go oh man maybe opponents are drilling their threes quite the opposite opponents are only making 30 percent of their threes in those minutes it's just that every single other possible thing is going wrong they're giving up a billion offensive rebounds they're fouling like nobody's business and they're not forcing any turnovers but as you mentioned they have better personnel which is somewhat surprising when you consider like that they could have had like kata bates diop and some of the other guys there but i would say they have better personnel for katie at the five now than they did before one other thing to maybe keep an eye on bull bull they've actually been plus nine Mm -hmm. on the floor in 320 possessions this year again that's a pretty small sample but he's got a little bit of versatility on offense he can attack a closeout he will finish around the rim very efficiently i think he can make an open three now is he going to hold up defensively I, i thought with the magic he showed the ability to at least switch and not get embarrassed which was what happened to him early in his denver tenure last year uh, and obviously he's going to frustrate frank bogle because i mean there's a reason he's on was available for phoenix right now and he isn't still in the magic that he just doesn't really execute you know i'm not sure how good his work habits are all that all that but getting him out there with kd like that might be 
I think they really need to try to explore that look as much as they can, particularly during the time that Beal is out. It's like, who, who are you? Like, okay, a Kogi, you're going to play him instead. It's like, you know, Bull Bull maybe could work out at least. So give him a shot there. Yeah. There, there is a benefit that opponents are shooting 26% on threes in the KD and Bull Bull minutes, but it has worked out pretty well. And it, it is, as you mentioned, even if there's a regression of the bean from a shooting perspective, it is a it is a move worth trying just because it, it has a theory that some of the other configurations don't. And that's something that I, I generally do look for. And so I think we can move on and we'll move down the standings. And there is a, a meaningful gap here. So go from 24 losses to 27 losses. And that brings us to the former Western Conference finalists, the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers, as we record this, 31 and 27, but a strong 5 and 2 since the last 1560. They are positive in net rating, plus 0.7, and they're 17th on offense and 15th on defense. So they're around league average on both, which is striking. Um, projected to finish with 44 wins, which would be the 10 seed. So that is the challenge of not only you make the play in, but you can't do better than the 8. And BPI, and of course, it's BPI, BPI only gives the Lakers a 42% chance of making the final 8 in the West. Yeah, and the Lakers really have kind of been two separate teams this season their offense really struggled and then about a month ago they started going back to d'angelo russell and austin reeves in the starting lineup Rihachimura is playing a lot now as well to give them a little more size torian prince has been demoted to a backup but as you look at their rotation which is about as healthy as it's going to get right now christian woods out with this knee effusion for a couple of weeks and cam reddish is supposed to be pretty close coming back to that ankle that's cost him i think over a month now but just look at this rotation for the lakers at the moment i mean they've been really good on offense the stat was going around that they had a stretch recently i think an 11 game stretch where they scored more points than the showtime lakers ever scored in an 11 game stretch part of that's due to just simply the the times we live in but you know they really morphed into more of an offensive team if you think about their starting lineup like lebron okay i think he he's probably about average for a power forward defensively in this day and age like he can ramp it up he's smart guys are still a little scared of him around the rim even though he doesn't contest that much uh obviously ad is really good uh, although his effort can wax and wane at times but then reeves i think is you know probably average at best for a shooting guard russell is very poor at the point of attack they don't really have like a, a great point of attack defender like hachimura is not a guy who's going to get over screens either and then spencer dinwiddie he might be the best defensive guard who's playing for them right now other than max christie but prince jackson hayes is a mediocre defensive center like that's your rotation in their victory over the spurs on friday so i you know i'm not i think if you could be average defensively with that group like you probably are actually pretty satisfied but fortunately for them they've been making it up on offense it has and been angelo russell a big reason uh, for that yeah i mean it, one of the ideas of well how is that group going to work when they're limited defensively is you're going to have to make it up on the offensive end and they really have i mean d'angelo russell overall this is yeah full season wait just a second I, my my tabs got all weird um so since since january 12th so not full season but over the last six weeks 45 percent from three on an incredibly high 
three-point attempt rate, 8.6 per game, and he's averaging 23 points per game during that stretch. Yeah, January 13th, he goes crazy, drops 39 in Utah, and he's been averaging 36 minutes per game since then. And he had a pretty hilarious quote when he was, he was asked about like how he's being more successful. And he said, I don't remember exactly how many me's he had, but it was at least four. He's like, me, 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 me. Like, that's how I take pressure off LeBron AD is I try to be more aggressive myself. Yeah, averaging the 23 points, seven assists. 8.63s per game, shooting 45%. On those 61% true shooting, where he struggled with efficiency a lot in his career. But if you look at it, it overall like he's actually been kind of below average from every shooting zone other than that crazy three-point shooting about if you can shoot 45 percent on 8.6 threes per 30 uh per game actually also about 36 he's averaging 36 minutes that's really useful but other than that he's and he is shooting 70 percent at the rim but that's only 46 attempts uh, in I think, those 19 games he does have one dunk though his first dunk since 21 wow okay and then, but he's below 40% on some of his staples, which is upper paint, 27 out of 70, and 16 of 43 from mid-range. He's getting to the upper paint a little bit more, at least. But yeah, I mean, this, this scalding shooting, he's 45% on above the break threes. A lot of that is off the dribble. So the aggression that he's shooting with is working. He's been driving a lot of this hot stretch. Could he keep it at 40% maybe on this type of volume going forward? <sighs> You know, we'll see. Obviously, 45% is just not going to sustain. But I was hoping as I dug into this to see that maybe there is a little bit more there than just making his threes. But that really is, it's not like he's getting to the line at, at any crazy amount either. But it really, like, you know, they've needed to be more aggressive from three. LeBron has missed, I think, five of the 19 games. So, and they're, you know, Austin Reeves is not, like, even if Austin Reeves has generally been more efficient than Russell, I think if Austin Reeves, like, could be creating more shots at this point, he probably would be. Where I think, particularly as an isolationist, Russell is just able to get more shots off, particularly from three so they kind of need him particularly with lebron in and out of the lineup or limited with this uh, ankle tendinopathy but it, it, i do predict a regression we'll see how severe it is going forward uh, i i have forward. i have a laker stat for you this I, I found this really striking yeah the lakers highest volume three-point shooters per 36 minutes and you know we've been talking about three-pointers per 36 a fair amount on this 1560 d'angelo russell 7.4 highest on the team yeah, then Torian, Torian prince 6.1 Austin Reeves 5.5, LeBron 5.5. Those are the only players over 5 per 36. Now, one thing that's different about them is their fours and some of their fives, like Christian Wood shoots some threes and Rui shoots some threes. But that, like, just doesn't, like, they don't even have that just gunner off the bench or anything like that. Like, they have guys who are capable shooters, and Reeves isn't doing quite what what he was last year. We talked about that in Best Contracts a little bit. But they just don't have that guy in the rotation. Yeah, Anthony Davis, uh, Darvin Ham said he wanted him to shoot more threes. Over that 19-game stretch, he's 4 out of 26 from downtown so he's trying to take a few more uh there's uh, also talk that they're doing more of this five out offense uh, that's uh, been helping so I, I i'm curious to see how much of this offense they can sustain you know they've kind of been going to a three guard approach now dinwiddie playing about 25 minutes in the, these first couple of games he'll play with either russell or reeves uh, and they do did go to a little bit of an all bench group in that san antonio game or at least a a four bench players at once group 
at the end of the first and then started the fourth quarters and did go actually on a pretty decent run. But I think that was probably more driven by the fact that Victor Wembenyama was off the floor during some of those times. Golden State, we're going to skip because we're going to talk about their game against Denver tomorrow that we're both about to be at in a matter of hours here. Who's up next then, Houston? Next would be Utah, but we're, are we going to move them to Monday as well? Or do you want yeah, to? Yeah, yeah. I, I still want to talk about my trip there and take a little more time on that potentially. So then we go to the Houston Rockets. 25 and 31, two and five since we last checked in on them, but they did have a nice win over Phoenix. Phoenix was on a back to back. Fred Van Vliet is back for them. I definitely recommend you guys listen to the good episode that Dan and Seth did. One of the things they talked about was Fred Van Vliet basically being the shortest guy ever to average a block a game. I I thought that was a, a pretty interesting discussion among many of the other real or not reals that they got into. Uh, it's a little older pod, but it still holds up plenty. Houston's still in the positive. The anti-Kings plus 1.0 net rating despite being six games under 500. That's ranked 16th in the league. They are 24th on offense, fifth on defense. Really pretty remarkable. John and I talked about that in our coach rankings. That, that is quite the feather in Ime Yudoka's cap. And they project for only 36 wins. That would place them 12th. Of course, their pick is top four protected owed to Oklahoma City this season. <laughs> We wanted to talk about the evolution of Alperin Shangun in this uh, his third season. I did, and Shangun, you know, we wondered about what his role was going to be. They added significant talent around him, both bringing in a point guard in Fred Van Vliet, but then the overall roster construction and and some real improvement from guys like Jabari and um, eh, Jalen Green. We had some improvement, but I'm not going to go overboard there. And there are some really interesting things that I, I wanted to. I'm doing a mix of like Seth stats and synergy that stood out to me. So, and, you know, of course, obviously watching a lot of Rockets basketball. Top line numbers for Shangun on the year 21 points, nine rebounds, five assists in about 32 and a half minutes per game. His individual scoring efficiency is percentage-wise the same as last year, but as we talked about with Pascal Siakam, doing that, so 59% true shooting on 21 usage and 59% true shooting on 27 usage, which is what he's doing this year, are dramatically different because as you slide that far in usage, the quality of shots that you're getting pretty much has to be worse because you just can't, you can't ramp up that much. Yeah. And just I, I, I do think there's different. a little bit of an an exception to that which which we can we can get to but i i think it, generally that is certainly true and probably mostly true in his case but i, I did want to hit on that a, a little bit as we continue here and looking at it in terms of seth's total usage it, it's striking because we wondered okay you know you're bringing in van fleet you're also bringing in a new head coach at Udoka. what is his role in the offense going to be and so what's one of the things that stands out is so upper shangun's total usage is very similar to sabonis however and those players have been compared kind of how you how you would utilize them shangun's increase in overall role is coming almost entirely as a score his playmaking percentage went up from 10 to 11 and a half which is sizable relative to you know centers but going from a little bit over under 18 percent scoring usage to 24 is a much larger change the average center has 16 and a half scoring usage and 6% playmaking. And so he's at 24 and 11 and a half right now. So that's really, that's really big. And then something else just kind of, so on the offense role, so like basically what Chengun is doing more now is he's playmaking a little bit more, but he's scoring a lot more and doing so just as efficient, as efficiently as he was before. And one of the other things, 
things that I I was looking at, and set, I have Seth's room protection number. So originally, I was really interested in block percentage. Shangun we stuck out to us, you know, when model projections and from from Europe and everything else. Really high block rate, four percent block rate his rookie year. Then second year that dropped to three point two. Now this year it's two point one, and that is not from my perspective a circumstance where Shangun is oh all of a sudden he's bam out of bio and he's out there on the floor all the time he's just blocking fewer shots that doesn't necessarily mean like he's a bad defender or the defense is bad or anything like that we brought up that they're fifth overall and how that's a feather in Imedoka's cap but Shangun being like a much better rim protector than than Tabata Savonis which was a part of my theory of why I thought Shangun was so much could could be so much better that hasn't really borne itself out yeah I do still feel like I I see more from him agree uh, and maybe maybe I was focused more on that early on this season but I do think he just kind of gets his chest in there a little bit more he's a little more explosive vertically uh you know I mean the, he's also just I think done a much better job of just stepping up earlier in the possession before the ball gets all the way at the rim to deny penetration I mean they are the number five defense right and you know I, I I'd be very surprised if Demonis Sabonis ever plays a, on the number five defense despite the fact that the this Rockets team has a, a lot of talent around him I, I think this is you know certainly to say that he's like a positive in and of himself is probably going too far but he's also not killing them you know I, I think that's pretty important um you know I, I talked about that exception that I had of like that you're you're taking harder shots generally if you're taking more shots and Shingun increasing uh, the percentage of possessions that he's using as a score and turnover guy from 20 to about 26 percent which is obviously very high for a center if you look at his synergy play types though last year and remember this is a piece of a much smaller pie 21 percent of his possessions came as the pick and roll roll man and he was actually below average in that at a 1.1 points per possession and this year again in a larger pie 26 percent of a larger pie versus 21 percent of a smaller pie coming as a pick and roll roll man and not a ton of that is you know getting an alley-oop for a layup right around the basket but i think having fred van vliet if you compare that to kevin porter jr jalen green as the primary ball handers last year you know throw in your Dyson Knicks or Ty Ty Washington plenty for that as well his synergy with Van Vliet like really having a someone who can set him up on the moving this is not you know James Harden and Joel Embiid but similarly just to get him the ball on the move in a place where he can do something with it facing the basket without a guy directly in front of him or where he can just duck in quickly against a switch or just have a temporary advantage to get the ball like that's been so massive to me to me the fact that he has been he's posting up about actually fewer of his overall possessions but you know last year he had 230 pick and roll roll man possessions this year he's already at 293 and that's massive to me and I think one of the things that Udoka has struggled with is Van Vliet and Alperin Shangun, you know, much like Steve Nash and Amari Sotomayor, they didn't used to stagger those guys with the Suns. Those guys work together really well, but then all right, if you're you also need to get through the game for 48 minutes so do you keep those guys together or do you stagger them just so that you have like someone to run the oh. offense through because they just don't really have i mean a backup point guard that they the direct that parallel the direct parallel for me was kerr separating draymond green and steph curry more last year because jordan Poole couldn't do it right yeah and now 
do they try to run more through a men Thompson who is just dunking everything in sight, but hasn't really been, I mean, the number like this guy, he's getting like six dunks a game. And some of it's these incredible. It's insane. Uh, I yeah. mean, the, I don't know if I'm going to be quote unquote, right about a men Thompson and my belief in him as, as a prospect, it's sure going to be a fun journey to watch though. That's that is. And, and, and yeah, it was, it was, was one of those, I watched them. I think that was on Friday and it was just because, because uh, there have been some games where a men, yeah, it was that win against the Suns where they were down, they were down early and then they came back and the men just like all of a sudden he just goes on like a a little mini rampage. It was like, oh, that's really fun. They have such, yeah. the Rockets have such a fascinating collection of players because like last time remember I did all this stuff about Cam Whitmore's like weird defense and everything else. It's like. They have this the super stable guys in Shangun and Van Fleet, and then it's just like chaos around them at times. Yeah, I mean, I think Amen Thompson could end up being very similar to Ben Simmons, except uh, you know someone who just say shall we say a more aggressive mindset than <laughs> than Ben Simmons uh, in the end. But I mean, he's just like he just has such a nose around the back. I mean, he basically can like be in the dunker spot, but like actually do something uh, and you know he's starting to really develop defensively as well it's gonna be especially when tari eason comes back i mean that like a man tari eason and whitmore all in the <laughs> second unit is, is gonna be crazy yeah i mean eventually so, someday one of, those, one of those guys might move into the starting lineup at some point but a couple other quick things on shangun epm again not gospel positive and more positive on shangun's defense this year than last year um negative 0.6 defensive epm last year that's up to plus Point four. That that improvement is actually higher than his offensive improvement. And that's a part of why Shangun, you know, an EPM went from a plus one last year to a plus two point eight this year, which is very, very good. And we we got Seth's rim protection numbers and Shangun, it's it's a fascination. At some point I may want to have an extended conversation with him, which probably won't be on a podcast about this. I thought it was super low on Shangun this year. Uh number four hundred and ninety-seven out of five hundred and seventy-four players. He's near Cody Zeller, Wendell Carter, and Nika Kongwu. So there are different. I have different levels of respect for different guys in there. As rim protectors, Shangun's contest rate of forty percent is higher than Zubats and Gobert. Gobert's role can be a little bit different there, but opponents are making sixty-two percent of the shots that he contests around the rim and 62% overall in the restricted area when Shingun is in the game. So I'm like, oh man, what was that last year? Last year, Shingun was 602 out of 609. He was above, you know, only above a couple of guys. I think Vooch was one of those. So I want to keep an eye on that. That's something I want to, I want to look into uh, both when I watch, when I watch the Rockets and, you know, kind of getting into the stat, the meat of the stats later on. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today 
All right, next on our list here. Oh boy. The Memphis Grizzlies are 20 and 37. Did have a rousing win against the Bucks before the break. What are the rest of their stats? The Grizz are 20 and 37 overall in the season, 2 and 5 since the last 1560, which actually, considering their absences, not not terrible. Uh, 25th in net rating, negative 5.5. Dead last in offense presently, but 8th in defense. And of course, there's some encouraging things there when you consider how limited their front court rotation has been due to injuries. BPI projects them to finish with 29 wins, which would be 13th in the West. That would be above just the two teams that we have not yet talked about on the pod. And they, of course, are not making the playoffs. Yeah, that eighth in defense has to be considered a triumph. Sure, some of the guys that they've brought in when they've had so many walking wounded are more defense focused. But considering how young they've been, it's pretty incredible. And of course, at least having Jaron Jackson Jr. available helps a a lot there. But they actually haven't defended much better with him on the floor versus off. It's basically even in that respect. And Vince Williams Jr., just not, not a guy who had any profile coming into the season he is actually third on the team in minutes I mean, they really are not that many guys who have played regularly that have affected their on off numbers all that much Xavier Tillman is a pretty good defensive player he of course is no longer on the team he was a one guy who they defended a lot better with him on the floor than off of the whole, uh, when he was on the floor offensively they had a 102 <laughs> offensive rating which is not not so great but I mean, Taylor Jenkins still remains a really good coach he's been out of the spotlight this year and they deserve a lot of credit for how they've defined I mean to have if anyone who watched Gigi Jackson play at South Carolina told you that the Memphis Grizzlies would have a 106 defensive rating with him on the floor this year that's uh that's, well, that's and, pretty remarkable in, and all, in on, 471 minutes on top of all that opponents are shooting 2.4 percent better from three this year than last year against the Grizzlies and generally teams have less control over that the attempt rate is actually a little bit down the proportion of threes are down for them so you think about some of the things that you know could be you know, they're they're the teams where they're like the, the Jedi mind trick or whatever like the Grizzlies aren't benefiting from that and they've only fallen from two date. want to check in on Zaire Williams because he did have 27 in that victory over the Bucks uh, before the break and most important thing is that he's actually been able to be healthy so far this season he started 11 of 47 games that he has played the overall numbers Danny not really showing much much improvement and in fact probably regression since his rookie year with maybe one exception that's that's totally fair so Zaire Williams's rookie year offensively 56 percent true shooting on 15 usage this year 52 percent true shooting on 20 usage um and then if you want to do some of the per 36 his three-pointer is actually about the same so he's mid sixes in terms of attempt rate per 36 making 32 percent it was 31 then but Zaire Williams in his rookie year made 63% of his twos, and this year he's at 49%. And there's there's some contextual reasons why you could see that with their personnel and everything else, but that's a dramatic shift. That said, and again, I'm watching the guy's best game in the season, so let's not go crazy here, but I was pretty impressed with what I saw against the Bucks, particularly with just the speed of release on his three-pointer, and yeah, he's at 31%. He's up to 20% usage, though. That's maybe the one thing that's changed uh, based uh, since that 15 that you mentioned his rookie year, and of course, there are far fewer mouths to feed. But like he, just the way he was getting his three-pointer off, he was four out of seven, 
in that game. It was just fast. Like he was catching it right at his chest in the corner. Growing up, like he's got a lot of size and length. Uh, he's mostly being guarded by Damian Lillard. So he was able to take advantage of that and shoot right over him. But I was like, the way he was shooting the ball, and you know, again, like guys have a lot of freedom, right? Like Gigi Jackson has a lot of freedom on this team. Taylor Jenkins is always, I mean, he's hasn't always had the personnel for this, but he certainly encourages guys to get up as many threes as possible. Just some of the footwork and how quickly he was getting that shot off was very, very impressive to me. This sometimes you'll see guys go for 27 and be like, okay, you know, the defense's plan was just to leave this guy wide open. He's got all day and he hit him, right? Like your Josh Giddy will have his four or seven from three, and that's what it looks like, or Grant Williams or something like that in that series against the Bucks. And this was actually like really getting that shot off fast. Uh, he also had a couple of great cuts. He really was uh, had a great third quarter, was able to beat guys down the floor for dunks a couple of times. Like that's something he's a pretty good athlete uh, off of two feet, dunking the ball uh, or making cuts. And defensively, you know, I think he's been up and down, but he has rebounded the ball so far this year, which I think is important, particularly for a team that it seems like they may be moving away from the big burly center, that that's a way that he can contribute is to help them still be solid in the defensive glass. We know that that's Jaron Jackson Jr.'s biggest weakness. So I, I was, it was just nice to see a bright spot from him because he just had such a lost season last year. He was a guy I thought was going to be a quality starter after that first year. And I'm not saying he's back on track by any means, but just watching him, you, you're seeing a few signs there. And we'll see whether he can fit in. This is just a critical last 25 games or so for him going into a season where he could be extended. Obviously, it's not going to be some big money extension, but you know there could be a little kind of Aaron Neesmith sort of potential here if he can get going a little bit more like he still isn't strong enough he really needs to be probably more of a point of attack defender than a guy who's going to do like a lot of switching and guarding fours but I still think there's a, a chance for him and I, I was good to see him have at least a, one good night and show some stuff on film that hopefully he can build on briefly on the the two-point change for Zaire Williams so we're going from the positive to a little bit of the negative I just found the numbers on this so jarring Rookie year, so these are all rookie year to current year because a little bit of a lost season last time he only started four games. Zaire Williams made 82% of it, and I'm using clean the glasses version, 82% of his shots at the rim his rookie year. Yeah, 65. I think every single one of those was like an alley from John Morant too. It felt that way. Um, 82% to 65%. Short mid-range, which per uh, clean the glass, that's four to 14 feet, 36% to 25%. 25% is real bad. Long two, so 14 feet to the, to the arc. 61% to 38. And now you're dealing with small sample size theater because Zaire Williams doesn't take a lot of shots from that range. But if you're wondering how a player can go from converting 63% of his twos to 49% while not really changing the proportion of his shots that are dunks, that's how it happens. Let's move on to Portland. Do we have to? Uh, but yes, we, we should. And the Portland Trailblazers are 15 and 40. Unfortunately, they are 0 and 5 since the last 1560. Talked about Scoot Henderson's adductor issue on the most recent podcast. They are 27th in net rating, below the vaunted negative 10, negative 10.3. So there are currently four teams at that threshold. 29th on offense, 24th on defense, and BPI projects them to win 22 games this season. And if you want that not outside of the context of the West, so yeah, that's second worst in the West. It is fifth worst in the NBA because the Hornets, the Spurs, the Pistons, and the Wizards are all projected to win 19 games or fewer. 
Yeah, and Portland actually somewhat healthy at the moment. Uh, Brogdon is out with this elbow thing again, and Scoot. I I, I wouldn't go that far there. with Sharp, Scoot, yeah. and Brogdon all out. Oh yeah, Sharp too. Yeah, the, their front their front really, court is pretty healthy. It's amazing how much time they've spent with just considering that we felt like they had this massive glut of probably four guys for either starter quality or that they would want to start in the backcourt and how many games they've had with you know like delano banton and they just signed ashton Hagen. i remember that delano banton is on the portland trailblazers uh in the course of, of doing this research uh, he's actually been playing for them and you know the backup front court is a little bit healthier now with the deandre ayton who went 11 of 17 against the nuggets zero free throw attempts jabari walker and matisse seibel it's been interesting watching him i still am a believer in his defense he's been right about the same level in terms of being a defensive playmaker statistically and it's three-point shooting that was the big thing it was like oh well he can't play in the playoffs because he can't shoot it's looked better uh, so far this year from three uh his three-point attempts are 77 percent of his shots and on his corner threes where he takes 40 percent of his threes he's hitting 40 percent of those 31 percent above the break that's not amazing but uh, the overall three-point numbers for Thibel, like they look adequate for a guy who's going to be mostly a defensive player it's fallen off a little bit recently but 5.8 per 36 like that's pretty close to the positional average for small forward and shooting 34 percent that's not too bad and watching his three ball like he's been more aggressive you can take you know if the other team goes way under on a handoff he can even take one dribble and shoot it his release is sped up it's not nearly as robotic and clunky the problem though danny is really more comes from and hey you know if he was playing with luke Doncic or the Mavs gave him that offer sheet maybe you can get by with doing absolutely nothing except making wide open threes because those threes are just so wide open that he's getting you and he's just throwing these fastballs the opposite side and of the they're in, and they're in volume too yeah yeah you know, we've seen like Derek Jones Jr. start to be more effective like the Lucas made guys into better three-point shooters and you know Reggie Bullock who can't do anything off the dribble like they still had a good offense with like him and Smith. but on most teams Seibel just his complete inability to do anything other than take a standstill three is where he comes in to be such a ability. So, so Nate, I don't think this is going to be the next Spates three versus Whiteside assists, but I didn't, until you, until I was looking through your research, I have, I have one that is not, I don't think it's in serious consideration. And that is Matisse Thibel twos, two pointers versus DeAndre Ayton free throws. (laughs) Ayton's got to be ahead of that, right? Like two point attempts or, or, or makes. I mean, either way, it's a compelling story. So right now, Matisse Thibel is 31 of 60 on two point attempts in the season. He's played 1,200 minutes this year. So 31 of 60, DeAndre Ayton on free throws, 38 of 47. DeAndre Ayton has taken, DeAndre has taken 47 free throw attempts in 1,200 minutes as a center who is seven feet tall. That's, that's truly remarkable. Uh, and I guess uh, now Aiton has, I think Thibel's been healthy all year and Aiton hasn't been, but yeah, that is that is pretty insane. But Thibel has the lead. Thibel has the lead in terms of attempts and he is trailing and makes. I don't know which way, if we're ever going to do this, we would do it. But I mean, 
Yeah. Now, now the Blazers have had no spacing all season. They've had some bad guards. Uh, Thibel himself has only taken 20 free throw attempts on the season. I thought another thing that was disturbing to me is he has seven dunks on the season. If you go back to his best year, which was probably 21-22, he had 60 that mm. season. Uh, the Thibel is shooting 63% at the rim. You would think that he that would be a little better, but you know, <laughs> given how rarely he gets there, that you can say small sample size on that. The Blazers still are struggling to score at the rim as a team or they've gotten at least a little bit better here's another thing uh, that you can point to basically of all the players who played more than 15 games matisse thibel on synergy has the highest percentage of his offense coming from spot up situations 59 percent of the time and now recall that synergy they characterize bobs as they throw you the ball there you can either drive it or you can shoot it but 76 percent of the time when he spots up thigh bowl just takes a, a no dribble jump shot and then 22% of the rest of his offense is in transition. So you basically have over 80% of his offense coming from spots in transition. Obviously, he's not going to be like a pick and roll guy. But I thought it was really disturbing that he only has attempted nine putbacks on the season. I mean, maybe that's a coaching thing. I thought at first. and Wasn't Doc he Rivers wasn't he one known. of Brett Brown's go guys? Well, but yeah, then it was Doc Rivers was the coach in, in 21 and 22. Sure. So it was only his rookie year that he was with Brett Brown. But I can't remember who was supposed to be a go guy was uh was oh, it, it, was james? it was james james Xander. ennis james yeah. ennis on the on the sixers was that guy um but like that's a way that i think he should just like as a cutter as an offensive rebound like he's got some good bounce like he should be able to do a little bit more there to just be more of a threat from not being guarded which it's disappointing that he's just he's so active defensively but he's really inactive offensively and yeah they don't have a ton of spacing i'm sure he's being told to just hang out in the corner a lot of the time because he actually is a better spacer than maybe some of the guys they have he's playing the three but yeah crash in like go, go just try to create a little bit of havoc offensively and finish and that's uh it's really been difficult for him i so here are some of the other players who are on that list of guys who spot up like a massive percentage of the time pj tucker has only played 13 games with the clippers but he, so these are clippers only stats yeah yeah i mean he, what did he play oh, yeah, three games right. for the for the sixers but yeah he's 70 percent of the time then thibel is the next guy who's played much then julian phillips with the bulls kind of interesting those guys have, have something together then garrison matthews with the hawks he's actually like a good shooter royce o'neill another guy who just fires threes and doesn't do that much you don't who royce o'neill replaced with phoenix joe harris dean wade but thibel is a much higher percentage of the time even uh shooting spot ups than those guys are uh, i don't want to go through the whole thing but i just think you're going to be so fascinated by this okay. deandre ayton currently has the ah! 28th lowest free throw attempt rate per 100 possessions of any player in the three-point era who is listed at seven feet or taller well, and that's um, insane because it's not like he's Jason Collins out there. Like he's involved in the offense. He gets the ball. I mean, he's got to be the lowest free throw attempt rate of a seven footer with his usage. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I can, I'm, I'm going to add that. I'm going to add that in as a like who, right who are now. some of the other names on this list? It's probably, like, you know, like Jason Collins, Jaron Collins. Well, know, so th- there's, Johnson. There's, a, there's a funny thing that a couple of them had extended stays with the Warriors. Um, Donald Foyle. Manute Bull, ah. RIP, and Andrew Bogut on the Warriors. He had a, an extremely low free throw oh, attempt yeah. rate. 
Yeah, but so so he didn't want to get fouled. So yeah, in terms of usage, so the so I did the filters I did were over a thousand minutes played, listed at over seven feet tall during the three point era. I'll I'll do I'll I'll just do the players who made it. Actually, um, okay, Rasho Nesterovich, John Konkak, Channing John Fry. Konkak, holy shit! I'm, you're, I'm gonna, there's going to be another name that you're going to really enjoy. Um, Channing Fry, Blair. Okay, Rasmussen. yeah, he takes a bunch of frees. That's fine. Yeah, Blair Rasmussen. Blair Rasmussen. Oh my. Guy. Yeah, I had his basketball card like 1990s. <laughs> that, um, that guy, he was just one of like the, there's just so many like awful white big men. Like and any player who like ex player is like, oh yeah, it was the school was much higher. I was like, you could just like read off some of these names, like John Conkak, Blair Rasmussen, Joe Wolf. It's like, no, we don't have guys like that in, Eric, in the Eric, league anymore. Eric Bontross is on this list. Um, another. <laughs> Um, yeah, and no, then, another another RIP, by the way. Oh, that's right. Sadly. Um, and yeah, so that's there are a lot of these players occur multiple times. I think Manu Bulls on it like four times. But yeah, but yeah, none of so. these guys are like guys who did anything on offense at all. They're just out there to like maybe get a rebound and like foul Shaq eight times. Correct. And actually, one of the weird seasons that is just that is just I guess ahead behind of of Aiton Poku last year, one point eight per hundred possessions. Yeah, so he's got Aiton has to be the highest with a usage rate. Of over, I mean, he has a usage rate over twenty this year. I assume, or at least, so. yeah, he he's actually only at eighteen point five right now. But um, there and again, some of these are like lower. Like the usage rate was got was came in a different way, something like that. Yeah, yeah, shooting some threes or whatever. But no, I think there's a a pretty good argument that this is like the sorriest free throw drawing season by a big man in NBA history. Yeah, it's it's the weird parallel of Aiton and Pool, where it's like they had a bad, they had like kind of a weird end. Of their year and you're like oh, it has to be better it's like oh no the 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 ceiling might be the floor well, i guess it'd be the floor might be the ceiling, ceiling. speaking of oh ceiling, boy the san antonio spurs are 11 and 46 they're only one and six since we last checked in on them they actually are up to 26th in the nba in net rating negative 8.5 27th on offense 23rd on defense they project for 18 wins the number 15 in the west that would be four behind where the blazers are projected but it really just doesn't matter anymore let's just fucking watch victor Wembanyama every night it's gotten to the point already where you just have to Wembanyama became the youngest player since the nba tracked steals and blocks in the 73 74 season to have a five by five 27 10 8 5 and 5 and he was one assist short not only the game before the night before and so he averaged a 5 by 5 over those two games because he had um he had eight assists in the lakers contest and he became I think it was the second player was M- and MJ was the other one to have five steals and five blocks in consecutive games. And so that is one really impressive thing. And I was like, you know, OK, you get two five by fives. I'm going to look up some weird NBA historical anomalies. That's what's going to happen here. Wembenyama's basketball reference block rate is now up to 9.7%. But he, the thing that's more intriguing in some ways is that his steal rate's up to 2.1. And in NBA history, so the, you know, since they started tracking steals and blocks, there are only 83 player seasons where someone, you know, played a thousand minutes or over 500. I had the, I had a lower filter on that um, and had a steal rate over two and a block rate over five. And remember, Wembenyama's block rate is 9.7. It's not five. And and if you raise the minutes played, then that drops to 59. And if you move the block rate closer to where Wembenyama was, then it's three. Victor Wembenyama this year, not a full season, so he could still rate could drop below 2%. Wouldn't be a huge surprise. 
Nerlens Noel in the 2020-21 season with the Knicks, and the player who's come up in the 5x5s, of course, Andre Kirilenko in the 04-05 Jazz team. And the list of players who have a 1,000 minutes played, steal rate over two, block rate over six, um, it's just it's just a ludicrous group. All the, the multi-guys, Davis, Kirilenko, Akeem Olajuwon, those were the fours. Nerlens Noel, David Robinson three times, Camby and Wallace, Ben Wallace, two times. So we don't know if he's going to get here this year. We don't know if it's going to be rarefied. But this, and remember, he started the year playing the four. This is wild. It really is uh, pretty wild. And they also have been pretty damn effective with him on the floor. I, I just looked through since January 1st, 110.6 defensive rating with Victor Wembyama on the floor in 627 minutes. He's played about half of their minutes since then. Remember, he's been on this minute. So he missed a couple of back-to-backs at that point. Uh, that's seven points per 100 better than when he is off the floor. So he is really affecting what they're doing. That would be, now their offense also sucks. Uh, and he hasn't really meaningfully affected their offense too much uh, since January 1st, at least in terms of the on-off metric. But that defensive rating, I mean, that is... And now he's playing with Sohan too. Sohan, I think, has taken some steps forward. He's, uh, the, Trey Jones is uh, getting some time there. That That's a bad offensive group, but that's three pretty good defenders. But yeah, I mean, that would be basically the number two defense over a full season with this young team that overall has defended so poorly. I, I mean, that is pretty massive. Uh, how is Wembenyama doing in Seth's rim protection stats? Again, noting that he's playing power forward, you know, the first two months of the season or so. Doing well. So Wembenyama is still listed as a center for the positional adjustment and that makes sense he's played more at center than power forward now 17th overall in rim protection wins and on the season Wembenyama is contesting 34% of opponent shots we've talked about the disparity between the beginning of the season and now and opponents are making 53% of those attempts now I will say Wembenyama in that Sacramento game it was close they actually had a four-point lead Kings in the last 90 seconds or so Spurs couldn't score and part of that was because Wembenyama just took some really bad shots I thought maybe even early in the clock took a couple of bad threes that just weren't I think he should really be focusing on taking those when he's open or late in the clock you know I still think that maybe they should have tried to get him the ball more in pick and roll against Sabonis as the ball handler I think the biggest thing that stood out to me other than the defensive stuff in the five by five and you you noted that he missed it against Sacramento with an assist but some of the passing in the Lakers game was just ridiculous like I, mm-hmm. I thought that was the most underrated aspect of his game when I watched the film there are these passing flashes and like he's like diming up these little guards for, like layups at the rim or like guys you know he runs a pick and roll and guys go back door or he's pushing the ball up floor and he's finding guys for for layups around the basket like Sohan he, he got him like a sweet reverse dunk it was like these passes are very very interesting and and he still needs to get stronger he still needs to be more of a dominating one-on-one player you know you can only run a 5-1 pick and roll so many times per game i would say and you might i think most teams are guarding him still with their center and i think they might it would behoove them to maybe put their center on sohan and try to just switch more with victor make victor go one-on-one against you and, and shoot a jumper and that would kind of take out some of these 
passes. Although some of these passes, they are switching, and he still is finding the guys with these. Like, it's pretty amazing to think that like maybe the tallest ball handler we've ever had in NBA history is like such a great bounce passer, but he really mm-hmm. is excellent at it. Uh, and it, of course, it has it has a long way to bounce. Yeah, and of course, the other problem if you don't put your center on him is if he's the screener and you try to switch, he can get behind the defense. You throw it up to him, and you know sometimes if even if the center isn't guarding him, he's not going to be able to get there in time to disrupt that. So he's he's but this is this last month and a half he's been everything that we really I think well, could have hoped for, other than maybe just taking a few too many bad jumpers still. But that has calmed down quite a bit in favor of just being involved generally in more pick and roll actions uh, on either end of it the way i'll phrase this is we got in a little bit of we, you know, we got a little bit of response on discord and everything else about having one banyama number one in our top prospects since that point that opinion has been vindicated oh yeah yeah i guess i i didn't see as much of that but um yeah i mean the 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 upside is just it's too massive yeah. and, and I, mean, I mean like this this spurs team sucks it is really bad. Yeah, and you brought uh, up like, oh, you know, they the put, put your center on Sohan. Like, when this team is actually credible, they should have much, much better offensive players than that. Um, Speaking of said offensive players, just briefly on Vassell, I brought him up in best content, contracts, and obviously he's a little bit under the radar because the Spurs team is not the most competitive or watchable in most moments. Vassell, 58% true shooting on 23 usage. Actually, so he had a larger role within the uh, as an assister last year than we expected. That has continued. Vassell, uh, same assist rate as last year. And totally good three-point shooter, 37% on about 8 per 36. But up to the thing that's really encouraging for me, up to 54% on twos and 71% in the restricted area when you consider that the Spurs do not have the best spacing in the world. That is impressive. And Vassell also has more dunks than he ever has in a season already, which is encouraging. Though he is, you know, he's playing a lot and he has a large role in the offense. Remember, he missed a lot of last year with an injury. So that doesn't mean he's going to be a star or anything else like that. But I just wanted to, because because I brought him up in best contracts and I'm sure that was surprising to some people. I wanted to mention a little bit about what he's done. All right, well, we, this is quite the bear of an episode. Oh, almost two hours and 30 minutes of recording time and we didn't even do three teams, but we'll be back with those tomorrow. Catch up on the news as well. Thanks so much for being subscribers and we'll talk to you all again soon at bet365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every basket every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line whatever the sport whatever the moment it's never ordinary at bet365 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.